BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. Wassail. Wassail. Oh, wassail. You know what? That joke comes out once a year, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that it is only the once a year. But it's still... Actually, it'll come back next next week. I'm going to do it again next week. Oh, really? You can't do it two weeks on the trot. Well, wassailing is a traditional thing. It'll be even more Christmassy next week. Yeah. And you see, I could now ask you the same thing that I do every year. What is wassailing and how does one do it? It's basically... I you saw three ships wassailing by. Yeah, you go around singing. Mm. And you, you sing heartily at your neighbour's house. Has it, you know that thing, um, we wish you a Merry Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. You know sometimes how when you hear a song that you've always thought was completely innocuous and then you actually listen to it. For yeah. the, for the, it's like when Eddie Izzard does that thing about when you actually listen to the American National Anthem. What he said it was... No, it's Kurt Vonnegut said the American National Anthem was gibberish with punctuation and question marks. And and the um, that, uh, you know... Uh, we wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. You know, we want some figgy pudding. We want some figgy pudding. We want some figgy pudding, so bring it out here. I never really... The third verse gets really threatening. It's, we won't, we won't go some. until we get some. It's like, oh, it's it's suddenly turned from being... You know, Menacing. Oh, we're quite jolly, but we're not... We Literally, we've come here for figgy pudding, and we're not going. And we've got weapons. And everyone's going, we won't go until we get... To, like, that's a good thing. It should be... If you haven't got any, that's fine. But it's like, you know, um, nursery rhymes... Well, yeah, but nursery rhymes rock are all a, crazy. rock a baby on the treetop is so sweet. And then when the bow breaks, the, the cradle, cradle will rock. rock. And then when, the, ba- when the, the cradle will fall, down will come uh, and baby and all. <laughs> so the baby falls out of the tree and dies. Have you read... Um, really? Why, why am I singing that? Have you read all those things like Strool Peter and... I know about that, yeah. I know. You know, and the long-legged scissor man and Tom Suckathumb and all that stuff. And I mean, well, that is basically horror stories for children. Wee Willy Winky. What does he do? Willy Winky went through the to the town, town upstairs and downstairs in his nightgown. Yes. Then he found an old man who wouldn't say his prayers. So he took mm, him hang by on. the left leg, took him by the left, left leg, leg, i.e. a Catholic, and throws him down the stairs. So, uh, so, that's, so that's what the left leg is. So let's not be too cheery about singing. I don't suppose anyone sings lullabies to, like that to their kids anymore. But I didn't know that's what the left I knew that the um, oranges and lemons... No, which one is it? No, it's Mary, Mary, quite contrary, isn't it? Is Mary, it? Mary, quite contrary. How do you garden grow with silver bells and cockle shells? That's all political. Is it? It's poetical, political. Yeah. Is that right? It is, yes. Very good. It's anyway, propaganda. I only started with wassailing because I thought it was you know, a nice, easy way into the programme. I once tried to sing one of my children to sleep with um, the Internationale in original Russian, but it didn't. It must have been a really entertaining it was a, childhood. It was a long night. It was that. Probably, your kids will probably sue you in yeah, future years. Uh, yeah. It was that or another rendition of I'm a Little Dinosaur by Jonathan Richmond, which I had sung so many times. That, and I love I'm a Little Dinosaur by Jonathan Richmond. In fact, I think that we should have I'm a Little Dinosaur by Jonathan Have you heard I'm a Little Dinosaur? I'm sure I have many years it, ago. If, if we could get, as the end of the programme, I'm little, it is so brilliant. Is it festive in any way? Yeah, because it's lovely and charming and, uh, you know. And what did your kids think when you sang it? Well, they fell asleep, but, it, but, but so what? So it worked, I suppose. Well, yes, but obviously at one point it didn't work. And I had sung, I used to walk round and round and round in circles, you know, singing I'm a Little Dinosaur, thinking, you know, I, I, please. And then go, you fell asleep. Please go to <laughs> That's the way that goes. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this is a personal service to you, okay. this first email, from Bob the Physio. 
Oh, oh, okay, fine, fine, fine. Right. Yes, this is my finger. It's Bob Wood, the physiotherapist from Norfolk here. Thank you. Again, we we last spoke in October about limps and gait patterns within members of a demonic cult. So it seems apt to pick up again to discuss Mark's finger, witchy finger, witchy finger, yeah, and what he described as his nodules. Now, Mm. I should say in advance that this uh, email is quite medically precise. So there's lots of terminology which I'll try not to stumble over. Okay. So, you call them nodules. They are, in fact, an example of the process of exostosis, which is the benign, there's the key word, okay? Just Thank hold you. on to that in the next few minutes. Yeah. Hold on to the B word. Okay. That was, the, that was the Woody Allen thing, wasn't it? That's the loveliest word in the English language. The benign outgrowth of cartilaginous tissue on a bone. More specifically, Mark's lumps are a particular type of exostotic growth called an osteophyte. These bony projections are found at joint margins only. Yes. Mark's lumps are by no means unique. In fact, this particular form of osteophytic exostosis is almost always found in pairs and at the distal interphalangeal joint. So, sorry, okay, I have got a pair of them, yes. Okay. Is it at the distal interphalangeal joint? I don't know what that means. Commonly of the index finger. This is my index finger? Okay. These... No, Some is a question. Is that my index finger? Yes, we right. did this last week. That is your right. index and finger. Uh, that's where the two of them are. There's this one here, which is a rogue Okay, well, hang on a second. Okay. These are Mark's exact symptoms. Because yeah. the bumps are both recognisable and reliable, yeah. they qualify for naming criteria, much okay. like a comet or a species of fungus. Okay. I think, Bob, that wasn't quite helpful. No, thank you, Bob. Mark got close with nodules, but they are, in fact, here we go. Benign. Herbadon's nodes. Herbadon's nodes? Named after William Herbadon, 1710 to 1801, renowned Cambridge physician, a great note-taker of his time, and an expert on chickenpox. Mark describes an additional lump. Yes, yes, yes. Is at his proximal interphalangeal joint. Yes. Which can only be an example of another infamous node. No, but it's not at a joint, this one. It's, it's... This is Bouchard's node, named after the French pathologist Charles Bouchard, 1837 to 1915, an expert in the autopsy of self-poisoners. This, could, this is almost Python-esque, actually. To celebrate Mark's lumps, if I come across a patient with them, I will diagnose them as Kermode's nodes. <laughs> or Kernodes would work. But anyway, Kermode's nodes, it has a certain ring to it. And they will be none the wiser for our witter foolery. Mark will sleep well knowing that in a small corner of Norfolk, there are folks sporting a medical condition named, named after, after his hypochondriac self. But the, OK, but the key thing in that, he's his head benign, right? He did. Got to rush off back now to the church and the significantly overcrowded clinician's corner where the Orthopaedic Society is showing an afternoon double bill of the misery and bone tomahawk. Regards, <laughs> Bob the physio. Anyway, so it's... OK, so I have... So, Her, so Herbiden's nose, which I've... You've, just, so you've got Herbiden's nose yeah. and the rogue one is, is, a, is a Bouchard nose. How do you spell Bouchard? It's French, so it's B-O-U-C-H-A-R-D. Bouchard's nose, OK, and... And Herbiden. That is remarkably like what I have. Well, it is what you have. That's why it is precisely what you have. So there you go. Diagnosis from Bob the physio. That'll be ninety pounds. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank okay. you very much. But the point is that the, the they're all fine, right? They just I merely pass on what Bob the physio is telling you. Okay. And it's cartilaginous tissue. Cartilaginous tissue. Yes. So interesting. I really had no idea. That's brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but basically, Mark is saying. Uh, Bob is saying, carry fine. on. Everything is fine. Okay. Keep calm. Carry on. It'll all be fine. It'll be fine. Okay, great. That's right, very very, very encouraging. Uh, the, the next email from one of your long-lost family here, Dr. Andrew Kermode, anaesthetic registrar. Wow. 
Further to your email from the listener who felt he had completed the full house of oscopies. Remember, we had we had someone who had been right. probed enough. You get an oscopy, you're a scientist. Can I point out that they actually haven't had a nasendoscopy? Oh, I don't usually performed it. by an ears, nose, and throat, throat surgeon passages. to look at the nasal passages. So it's called a nasen nasendoscopy. Nasendoscopy. I don't mean to dampen that listener's. <clears throat> I don't mean to dampen that listener's achievement, but merely right to suggest that they consider. Misplacing a piece of Lego or perhaps another toy with small parts in order to fully achieve their goal. You say, obviously, don't, don't do, do that. that. I mean, obviously, don't do that. I'm not supposed anyone would, but I just feel happier over Christmas knowing that we've said don't do yeah, that. Yeah, don't do it. Don't put marbles up your nose because they. what happens is they get stuck there and then they're there for like years and years and years and then you're a news story when somebody finds it 50 years later. Having had a nasendoscopy. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> I think we've mentioned every Oscopy going, I think, now. Um... This is Nicola Ely, BA Honours, History and English, MSc in Heritage Management, PGCE and Grade 3 Clarinet. Right. Loyal member of the church. I was listening last Saturday to your podcast where someone describes the distracting effect of your voices when they were waiting in much pain for an ambulance. Remember that? Yes, I do. I can vouch for the... Distracting in a good way, not distracting. Yes, exactly, because it took their mind off the fact they were waiting for an ambulance. I can vouch for the efficacy of your voices in painful circumstances, as I too was listening in much pain. I'd been hospitalised due to kidney stones, an ongoing problem over the last two years that has required many stays in hospital due to intolerable pain. Very painful, yes, very painful. On this occasion, I was awake in the wee small hours, waiting for the next time that I could take more drugs, as I was already up to my limit. And what was in my system was nothing like enough. The two-hour wait was significantly eased by listening to your show. Your gentle voices and intelligent witterings not only distracted but soothed. Should any more stays in hospital be needed, I shall be sure to have your podcast handy. For the foreseeable future, I'm stuck at home on the sofa, either feeling drunk from the drugs or just hurting. I'm embracing the dual pleasures of strong analgesics and the chance to watch some quality films during the day. So, so far this week... I've enjoyed Rogue One, Red Riding Hood, which was an unexpected hit with me. On my pride, uh, on my list are Pride, Harvey, Alien, Pan's Labyrinth and Roman Holiday. That's a pretty good selection. As this seems to have been going on forever, it would be very helpful if Mark could reassure me that everything will be all right in the end. Thank everything you. will be all right in the end. Thank you for giving me something else to focus on in my hours of need. Thank you, Nicola, and I hope you get better soon. Yes. We've got time for Sean. I think we do. Sean in London. Sean Wheatley. With reference to Anne James's emergency email from oh, the yeah, 7th yeah, yeah. of December who suggested that wittertainment should be piped into ambulances, <laughs> I am both a long-term listener and one of them flashing green van people who has been piping wittertainment out of his particular flashing green van for years, <laughs> both in podcast and live uh, when the shifts allow. While sadly meeting patients or crewmates who own up to being members of the church is rare, thanks a lot, I hope the good <laughs> doctors can take solace that your previously... Clinically proven witterings have been drifting over thousands of patients, soothing their journeys to hospital. Brilliant. John. So that's happening in an official capacity. If he's an official... He's a flashing green van man. Flashing green van man. I feel better. I feel as though we've kind of done our good turn. It is becoming... We've gone from from a church to a clinic. Could we be a a church with a clinic? I think we can be whatever we want. And a pub. (laughs) Clinic on one side. Pub on the other. See, I drugs thought, available there, alcohol available there. I thought this was gout. No, they're those. They're those. Whatever. It was. No, no, I know herbid, herbidaceous nodes. Her, herbidon and 
whoever the other character was. Herpidon. Bouchard. Bouchard. Herpidon and Bouchard does sound like a folk duo from the 1960s. They sound like the kind of film directors you might quote at me and I've never heard of before. Uh, and Henry Wilson, uh, dear fake doctor and fake professor, on the subject of cats and birdsong, our resident Moggy, Lilu, named after the character in The Fifth, Fifth Element, I thought you might be impressed by that, was also affected by the sustained dissection of avian acoustics on your December the 1st show. What did we learn about your favourite bird? It was a seagull. Yes, I like, well, gulls, because there's no such thing as a seagull. I often listen to to the podcast whilst preparing breakfast on a Saturday morning while the good lady producer, her indoors, enjoys a lion and Lee Lou slumbers peacefully on the bed next to her. On this occasion, she was stirred from sleep by a cacophony of birdsong, which caused perplexed looks and a noise that we refer to as the murder chirrup. That would actually be... This is a good name for a film. Yeah, that is. The murder chirp. She normally intones in this fashion when looking out of the window at the seagulls, and we translate these slightly sorrowful half-meows as, I wish I could be out there murdering those birds. <laughs> Definitely a case of birdsong-related feline anguish or bruffa. <laughs> it doesn't really. Anyway, I reckon there'll be a lot of cat owners that are familiar with the murder chirrup. Uh, so, thank you very much indeed. And Mark, I've got, got your present. Here it is. One... Two, one, two, three, four. I thought he'd never leave. Uh, well, I'm a little dinosaur. I'm a little dinosaur. I'm a little dinosaur. Do you know this? No, it's lovely. Don't you know? Million years or so. So basically, when he's singing this, he's walking around like a dinosaur, okay? And then everyone says he's, he says he's going to go away. And then he he, he does. He, he goes, goes away. Off, he goes off stage. And then all the modern lovers stand there and go, oh, yeah, I, I thought you were going to come back. He was kind of okay. And then when he comes back, I just burst into tears. It's so lovely. Have you ever seen Jonathan Richmond play live? No, no but listen, why listen, we... listen, listen. Bring him back up. Please don't, Please don't go away. Oh, why would... no. Can't stand it. I wish the little dinosaur would come back. Jonathan is loitering in the. Oh, this is so lovely. Oh, why would you cry? Please don't, because it's so moving. Tell that dinosaur to come back. And then he comes back. Oh, great. Come back. Oh. Cause I'm just a little dinosaur And I never really went Never really went Never really went away What kind of dinosaur does he walk around as? It's a Jonathan Richmond dinosaur Is it like a Triceratops or a... Uh... Yeah, I played, a, I played a couple of gigs with Jonathan Richmond and the, f- the first time we played a gig, we, we were busking in the streets of Manchester and we were busking and I looked out into the crowd and there was somebody I thought, that guy that looks exactly like Jonathan Richmond. And it looked exactly like Jonathan Richmond because it was Jonathan Richmond. Excellent. And Jonathan Richmond said, he said, oh yeah, I really like it. It's great. He said, and he said do you want to play with me? And because he he's like, kind of, you know, I, have, I am Jonathan Richmond, I've come out to play. I thought he was being <clears> cute. But what he meant was, do you want to play a gig with me? So and, we did. And now on with the show. Hi, hi. 
Did you, I asked you my... slightly late off the mark there. No, no, no. I was just concentrating and thinking about all the greatness that is to come over the next two hours. And were, you, were you suddenly overwhelmed by it? Suddenly overwhelmed by the sheer content that we're going to provide. The sheer amount of stuff. Olivia Colburn is our special guest. and Well, she's your special guest. And I'm very jealous because I think she's great. I think she's really fab. She's about to be, obviously, uh, the Queen in The Crown. Yes. And she is, before that, she is Queen Anne. In, in the, the favorite, which is uh, the mo- movie, which is being tipped for all kinds of awards, it's won it some is. biffers, and she's been nominated for Golden Globe. And I have been privy to conversations with top rank actors who all think that she's a shoe in. Are you allowed to say who they I are? I probably shouldn't. Okay, but, but you you were basically you were talking to a couple of of top rank actors, and they both said Olivia Colman for the for best actor for the cup. Okay, we're still best actress, isn't it? Though even I, I tend to use actor. No, I know, I know. Generic term, yeah. but there. But at, I think actress. at some point the awards will will change accordingly. But do you, you think know. that? But will that just mean there are, there are fewer? Well, this awards? is that's the argument against it. I don't know, but I just mm, who knows? Just best actor. Mm, yeah, it's possible. Okay, I mean, the, yeah, um, a controversial start to uh, <laughs> uh, to, <laughs> to the start program. as we mean to continue. Uh, First up, Ian Jackson, who's a professor of genetics at Edinburgh University. All right, Ian. Regarding your discussions recently of Nigel's, okay, so this is a, a, a Nigel's being uh, almost used as a yes as a nickname for a dad, someone's a little bit old-fashioned, uh, that kind of thing. Although I'd say once again that you know one of my best friends, Nigel Floyd, is none of those things. Yeah, and there's loads of them turn up as pilots. So Ian, yes, Jackson, exactly, yeah. Regarding your discussions recently of Nigel as a term for put-upon fathers and airline pilots and Keith as being an equivalent, a colleague uh, at the University of Edinburgh has compiled a website tracking the names given to 22 million children between 1840 and today. Wow. You can see how popular any name has been across the years and when was peak name, Okay. Okay. So peak Nigel (laughs) was 1962 when about one in 200... Babies were called Nigel. Peak Keith was earlier in 1946 at about 120, but 1962 is equally as popular as Nigel. Incidentally, you might like to know that Mark has three peaks. Uh, And they're all on my index finger. 62, 68 and 73. Simon has twin peaks, 68 and 75. My own name, says Ian, peaked 10 years after I was born. So my parents were something of a were something of trendsetters, although there were just loads of Ians around when I was at school. The incidence of Nigel, Keith, Mark, Simon and Ian is now almost undetectable. Yours geekily, uh, Ian Jackson. And it's at, uh, the website is demos.flourish.studio slash name history slash. Very good. There was a prog rock album that had on it the phrase, a few eons past, and I thought for ages that it was saying a few eons past. Well, last week we learned that uh, there are a few things that you've misunderstood uh, over time, like email, meaning emergency emergency mail. It was an emergency mail. Yes, because what it sounds like. Luke Chilton says, I have some sympathy with Mark's misunderstanding of the term email. The first emails my family ever received in the mid-90s were from my eldest brother, Ewan, uh, when he left home from university. Never having heard the term before, for months I believed the E in email stood for Ewan. (laughs) <laughs> and was always excited to receive the latest you human and mail. mail. Imagine my disappointment when I eventually learnt I would not be sending my own L mails, says Luke. OK, well, it's a, you're not alone. Is you and mail ever on you and yours? Julian Evitz 
uh, old-fashioned radio joke that was. Julian Evitz, was if it? I send an email using a phone which is on the EE network, yes. is that an emergency, emergency, <laughs> emergency mail? And so on. Uh, OK, so Natasha's on next. Natasha Hollow, great Hello. name. I know you've been busy with your new medical section of the show, but I need your advice. I don't know how I've been blind to it for so long, but my family... Embarrassed to say it, but my family mm. are yeah. code breakers, code violators. Ooh. I've always had to deal with the usual complaints of non-wittertainees. The film doesn't start for half an hour. Why do we need to be there so early? Why won't you just get popcorn with me? The film's over. Let's go. <laughs> on our regular scheduled nerdy family trip out on Tuesday, I saw my family in a new light. This is to see Once Upon a Deadpool, says Natasha. Okay. It started when my sister's fiancé came in and announced that he wasn't paying a fortune for the overpriced snacks at the cinema and that he'd brought his own treats. Then, to my horror, he produced a large plastic bag containing rustly sweets. Even worse, each and every noisy packet turned out to be a multi-pack containing extra rustle, individually wrapped sweets. I tried to explain, but I was so mortified. But anyway, he just shrugged and said, well, open them during the ads then. What? Anyway, fortunately, the sweets got forgotten and they left in the car. Then, during the screening, I realised that my very own brother is the secretly check your phone and accidentally light up the whole row type. <laughs> and finally, my mother. Despite explaining both the plot of the film and who the cast were before going to the cinema, my mother regularly asks questions, like, really loudly, throughout the entire film. Is that Eddie Mars? And he looks weird. <laughs> Did he just say, insert expletive? At that Somebody point. said, no, it's Eddie Marzan. Whenever I don't answer, she repeats the question even louder. There's another family trip planned for Aquaman this weekend. <laughs> As a DC fangirl, I'm so excited for the film, but I'm not excited about going with my apparently loud, obnoxious and inconsiderate family. But a lot of Aquaman is quite loud, what so that's do? quite good. OK, any, any advice to pass on to Natasha? Hollow and the Hollow family. Um, fake an illness and go the next day on your own. <laughs> it sounds like... Because you know that thing when you start worrying about the behaviour of the people you're going with, it completely undermines the, the yeah. theatrical experience. But you're right. If it's a big, noisy, loud film, it matters yeah, far less. it matters less, less yeah. than if you're going to see Quiet Place, for example. Yeah. And then that would not be fun. Just been speaking to Emily Blunt, by the way. Just been speaking to Emily Blunt. And she said afterwards, can you do all my interviews? She did, but sadly that we weren't recording at that point. But we were the first interview in. This is obviously Mary Poppins returns, and that's going to be on next week's show. And mm -hmm. I'm very, very excited. And I, and the soundtrack is is out. And I was listening to it this morning. Yeah. And everything. The world is a better place. You're thoroughly charmed. I yeah. still haven't seen it. When I said I'm going to see it Monday, right? Yes. I didn't realise that it was this Monday coming, not the Monday. So my, my, you know, my Monday was kind of rather blown out of the water because I was thinking I'm going to see Mary Poppins returns, and then I didn't. You must be very frustrated. I am, but I also think, in a way, it's like it, it's it's setting up. I mean, I've got my nerves and my expectations are so high. I'm just now. hoping that it, you, that you're not crashingly disappointed. I need to set the bar low for you. No, I mean, I'm already reassured by the okay. fact that you seem enthusiastic. Robbie Collin loves it. Oh, so right, reviews are out now, are they? Yeah. They're oh, out. and I think the embargo was yesterday. Um, uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Was Wednesday. Okay. Embargo. And what's I haven't read any reviews, but just give me the joke. So Robbie well, liked it. Robbie liked I'm it. I'm a very big fan of Robbie. There so. was a, a ludicru ludicrously wrong review, in my opinion, in the Times by Kevin Mayer. He gave it two stars, and I think the Guardian gave it three. But anyway, I think you're going to give it four, in as much as well. We don't do that. We don't do this. I just think you're going to love it. Okay. All right. So I'm going to be okay with it. 
Here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing. The only thing that you need to know. Yeah. This is all preamble, obviously. Yeah. But Sophie, who works on this show. Yes. Who brings in the drinks and I say thank you and you say, why did you no, say thank you? No, she books the guests. No, I That's know. That's the main thing that no, she does. No, I know she does all those things as well. But you, yes. because the time that her name comes up is when she comes in and I say thank you. And Bizarre. you say, why are you saying thank you? Exactly. And, I, because and now you've made me say something that made me sound like I was saying that Sophie's main... Jamie also gets drinks. <laughs> Simon doesn't because it's kind of above him. Robin would never. I just buy feel like I've just dug myself into the biggest possible hole. Anyway, what Sophie Politeness. said. What Sophie said. Sophie, the guest booker and fabulous organizer of the show, her, who also happens to bring in tea. She said, "When I came out, I thought my face was aching from smiling so much," which is kind of all you need to know. And that does also echo that lovely phrase from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Sometimes just smiling makes my face ache. There you go. That's what it is. Anyway, lots of Mary Poppins on the show next week. Uh, box office top 10 out of 10 is Mug. Oh, no, at 43 is Mug. Yeah, which I, I thought was a really interesting film um, about the responses to somebody after they've had a, a life-changing injury. It's about a facial transplant. So Mug, Twarts, um, Mug as in meaning face. And I mean, I, it's I, I, I was I knew almost nothing about it before I saw it, and I, I thought it was very, very intriguing and, and very well done. And it's about, you know, the, the way in which your physical appearance affects the reactions of those around you, and this uh, central character who falls down into this vast statue of Christ that they're building, and then has to have his uh, have a face transplant, and then people think he's a different person, or is he the same person underneath? I thought it was actually really good. Uh, SP. Uh says, uh, this was one of my favourite picks from the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Some scenes are so well made in this, especially the build-up to and the actual accident itself. However, it did have an optical blur over many images, which did sometimes become kind of annoying, as some shots looked really nice, but you couldn't it's see to, them okay. underneath the blur. It's to do with um, a very close, focused point of view. And the, the best way of describing it is, if you ever saw that film, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, in which they use a tilt-shift lens, in which the, the whole point of the lens is there is only one part of the image that is in focus and the, and the other part isn't. And uh, they used it in Diving Bell and the Butterfly to kind of portray that very narrow vision that he had after his you know, traumatic accident. I think it's used for a similar way here. And it didn't bother me. I know other people have commented that they didn't like it. I thought it worked in, in the same way as Julian Schnabel's use of it worked. Uh, at number 10 is The Nutcracker in the Four Realms. <laughs> Nine is Robin Hood. <laughs> Robin Hoodie. All over the place, but, you know, hey. Sorry to bother you. Which is I, number eight? Yeah, no, I really... Do we have any emails about that? Lots. Okay, can I go first or you want to go first? No, you go first. Okay, so I thought Sorry to Bother You, which is the feature debut from Boots Riley, was really, really interesting because it's, it's set in a kind of alternative present Oakland and it's about a guy who takes a job in telesales marketing who ends up having to sell basically modern slavery. And the film starts off as this very sort of sardonic, satirical comedy and then it takes a left turn very much for me in the in the same manner as Lindsay Anson's Oh Lucky Man or Brian Usner's Society and it becomes this kind of sci-fi sci-fi fantasy inflected uh, story and some people have said well I don't like you know it's it's a game of two halves it's one kind of movie then it changes into another but it isn't because right from the very beginning it has this very surreal sensibility it's very funny I mean very very funny but very sort of sharp and it is very specifically a movie about capitalism and the way in which 
and what the, the price of selling out is. And it's really funny. Uh, David Williams says, Sorry to bother you. It's a brilliant, funny and surprising film that has instantly become one of my favourites of the year. Great performances all round. But is it Lakeith Stanfield? Yes. Uh, it's especially noteworthy in the lead role and the costume design deserves recognition too. Hope it's not overlooked during award season. Uh, off Neil Smith from our f- <laughs> Facebook page, excuse me. Aside from being a rare African-American film which doesn't focus on gangs, guns, racism and so on, although those things are in the background... It's a surprisingly coherent critique of capitalism, which just when it's starting to become predictable, takes a welcome turn for the surreal. Shades of Repo Man as well as Oh Lucky Man, very nicely done. Very good. Thank you. No shades. What, of am I reading? Well, no, just the Shades of Repo Man and Oh Lucky Man. Oh Lucky Man was the thing that I had flagged up before, um, but I didn't make the Repo Man connection. That's very good. Daniel Richards in Brixton. I went to watch Sorry to Bother You, excited after Mark's review. Whilst I agree that the humour clearly worked and the world that was created in the first half of the film was incredibly engaging, I felt the filmmakers overstepped it in the final act. Uh, The second half did not feel authentic to the world. Uh, There's uh, there's an edit here which he mentions a specific thing. Yeah, which you can't So the thing in the second half didn't feel authentic to the world that had been created. And whilst I agree with Mark that the tone of the movie was maintained throughout and the absurdity subtly cranked up as the film progressed, it still felt like one step too far. It was too out of place for me. Whilst I enjoyed the film, it left me feeling that the filmmakers had put together a mesmerising and thought-provoking jigsaw, but put the final few pieces in upside down so that they never (laughs) truly fit. Although Um, maybe that's kind of a nice thing, is that it's a jigsaw with the final few pieces upside down. Actually, I think Boots Riley would like that description of the film. Morgan Lowther... Uh, I suspect it might take a few months and possibly hypnosis to work out how I feel about this film. Having uh, gone in seeing only a brief trailer which played up the comic aspects, this sits somewhere alongside the similarly mistrailered Icelandic sob fest that was Rams. (laughs) It's always nice to have expectations, however limited, subverted, and the few recent films uh, have done this quite... A few films have done it quite like this one, though I'm not sure I can wholeheartedly recommend viewing. I do think going in with minimal information is the way forward for any yet to view it. I shan't spoil any of the horseplay that comes around the final third, but suffice to say, I think this is a film I'm glad to have seen, but not one I think I enjoyed. Is the phrase um, canters towards a crazed final act, which I particularly liked. Horseplay is a good term. Yeah, no, but it's particularly good in relation to this. It's It's a pointed use of that word. Um, what's great is that because you haven't seen the film, you don't know why, which is brilliant because it means it's not giving anything away. Correct. I have no idea what you're No, which is about. great. So that's a very well constructed. So sorry to bother you, is it number eight? The Old Man and the Gun at seven. I, I loved this. I thought it was really wonderful. I, it was the film of the week last week. Um, Robert Redford has said that uh, he thinks that it might be his final performance. I, whether or not that's the case, we, we, we'll wait and see. But certainly it will be a wonderful note to end on. It's based on a true story. It's, you know, this this group of elderly uh, bank robbers who were nicknamed the Over the Hill Gang. But it's basically a, a character which brings together elements throughout Robert Redford's screen career. So as you're watching it, you're thinking, you know, Butch Cassidy and, you know, you're thinking of all those classic roles. And it's a wonderful relationship between him and Sissy Spacek. It's got a, a really nostalgic 70s feel texture to it and i i it twink it really i mean i just loved it and you know the thing that sophie said about when she came out of the 
Emily Blunt interview, a face almost hurt from smiling. Well, that was exactly how I felt about the old man and the gun, was I smiled all the way through so much so that, you know, that it was almost tiring. But that is terrific. And oh, it's wonderful. even films that you really enjoy, you rarely kind of smile. No, I know. And I mean, I, I really genuinely did. And it has, there's a sequence in it, one scene in it, which seems to be out of context, but actually fits beautifully with the tone of the rest of the film, in which it's just three guys propping up a bar and Tom Waits tells this story about Christmas. And and it's just, it's almost like as a standalone short film, it will be brilliant, but it works so perfectly in the in the film itself. And I, I loved it. You you have to see it. Because I will. You will absolutely love it. I'm looking forward to it. And I think for you to, to, to for one, to smile throughout a whole film, you the key thing is you have to be relaxed, like in the first five minutes and yeah. you think, okay, it, this is this is fun. It's a fun. I'm it's a very all good hands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anthony Frey, age 27 and a half, having adored David Lowry's underrated reimagining of Pete's Dragon, I was, unlike some other patrons, happy when the title card for The Old Man and the Gun appeared at a Screen Unseen showing I attended a few weeks ago. I would urge everyone to take 90 minutes of shelter from the biting winter cold and crowded December high streets to watch this film because I thought it was the cinematic equivalent of a warm hug from a bowl of tomato soup wrapped in a blanket. <laughs> Mark sometimes talks about going along with films in his reviews. Well, I went along with this one exactly as far as it wanted me to, and I would have gone much further still. It very nearly tips over into silly levels of sentiment near the end, but catches itself just before it does. I cared about all the supporting characters, sharing their curiosity about the fascinating title character, and on occasion their hurt caused by his behaviour. I usually bristle when films are described as love letters to anything. But if this was a love letter to Robert Redford's remarkable career, then who cares? I absolutely love Robert Redford, and I absolutely love this film. Good. Uh, Bob Douglas. I shared Mark's enthusiasm for this film's pace and performances and thought I was headed for a treat. Scenes like Tom Waits' barroom ramble yeah. were deliciously languorous. Yes. The romance between Redford and Spacek's characters was a delight, but I felt it fell short at the end. Okay. I noted one of your listeners commented on its relatively short 90-minute length as a quality. Call me a sceptic, but I always wonder, with movies that don't get beyond 110 minutes these days, if something has gone amiss that has resulted in less than felicitous trimming. No, no. Key characters disappeared without any explanation, and the denouement felt hurried with, as I recall, a lazy postscript to wrap up the story. OK, can I just say... It, films aren't short because things went wrong. Films are long because things went wrong. Very good. Nicely contained. Thank you. This one might make you cross, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a little warning. Okay. David in Wimbledon. Mm, I'm cross already. I went to see The Old Man and the Gun tonight and for once had not listened to your review in advance. I will be listening after I finish this email. I had seen the trailers and had hoped for a light, amusing and interesting film. Instead, I found it incredibly slow. It didn't pass the one laugh test and I did not find any of the characters, perhaps barring Sissy Spacek's character. Spacek. Spacek's character in the least bit interesting or engaging. I did not care what happened to Forrest and didn't feel the robberies were done or could ever have been done in a gentlemanly way. I felt the side story of the policeman. I did achieve the first, though, as I nodded off midway through the film, Pass me the which I have never done. Quite an achievement as I saw the film at 6pm. I don't think there was enough in the story to make it into a 90-minute movie. If this is to be Redford Swan Song, it's a terrible way to sign out on an amazing career. Just pass, me the, pass it to me. You just want to keep it for, just, for just, reference. Yeah, just You're up. not going to harm it, are you, in any way? You're certainly not going to tear it up. <laughs> It's 
Sometimes the inner Stalinist emerges and the censor takes over full control. Uh, anyway, so that's the old man in the gun at seven. Nativity rocks at six with an It's the second mark. best of the nativity films. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> so where does that does that well, mean that, it's worth it? It means that because it, yes, I mean the, the first nativity I, I liked, second less, third not at all. This is it's moving it's moving back in the right direction. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is at five. I loved it, and I I, I re- met Rami Malek, um, which was great, and. Uh, it, it I, you know, his performance in it is really, really great. But the, my only reservation is that people are now saying, "Well, the the only thing about the film is Rami Malek's performance. His performance is brilliant, and it's great that it's being recognised. But there is more to like about that film than just his performance, because I think the way in which it gets the niggling interaction between band members just right is terrific. And actually, that impresses me more than the, you know, shifting things around in the time frame and playing fast and loose with the facts, which it does do for dramatic effect. I'm happy with that because actually I think the way in which it gets the the band bickering is just spot on. Uh, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald is at number four. A whole bunch of plot, which is kind of saved by the final uh, segment, but there is there is an awful, you know, there's a lot of Shawshank before the redemption. Uh, one of those. Uh, Creed 2 is at 3 which I I, I liked uh, uh, it's it's funny because I know that there's nothing in Creed 2 to match the sequence in Creed 1 in which we see an entire fight pretty much you know play out in one shot but what Creed 2 does have is characters that you care about and it demonstrates that thing but if you care about a character half the job of the movie is done that doesn't mean you have to have to be sympathetic characters. You can care about unsympathetic characters. You can be interested in them. But if you're not, and if you don't believe in them as three-dimensional people, then the, the, the movie has a much harder job ahead of it. And I think in the case of this, in the case of The Old Man and the Gun, you know, it, it's down to the fact that you invest in those characters. So even if we are retreading old ground, which lit- in the case of, you know, Ivan Drago, we literally are it still feels fresh and interesting. The Grinch at number two. Mm-hmm. Ralph Breaks the Internet is at number one. Which I thought was kind of okay. I mean, it's not its not as good as the first. It's not as good as Wreck-It Ralph. But there are individual things in it which work. It does seem like a collection of bits. It's got, it's got a very, very episodic feel. And it is interesting that the most, the bit that most people quote, the bit that most people say, wasn't that scene funny, the Disney princesses scene, you could take out of the film and the film, you know, wouldn't because it, it is a, it's kind of it's a widget grown onto the side of the movie. But I didn't mind because I thought it was kind of entertaining. Erin uh, Henley, uh, after listening to several listeners disparaging reviews of Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet yeah. on last week's show, I felt compelled to write into your good selves in defence of the movie. Yeah. Perhaps the problem is that the Emoji movie has sent its pervasive evil stench into all future internet-themed animated features. Well, that as we mentioned before, when I came out of the film and Van Connor, who is a fellow film critic, the first thing he said was, it's amazing how much of that was in the Emoji movie. And I immediately started retrospectively liking it less. My family had not seen the Emoji movie. We good, are good, good. disciples well of the done. church, after all. And we found this film... Uh, this is uh, R- Ralph. It's, there's so many letters here. Wreck it, Ralph. Two. R- Ralph. It's just the called internet. Ralph breaks the internet. Charming and funny. Our 14 year old daughter got teary at the part near the end where the movie's themes were brought full circle. I had already gotten a bit teary myself as she turned to me during the trailer for Toy Story 4 and whispered, "That's my childhood." 
Have you seen the 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 trailer of Toy Story? I haven't. I haven't. But I'm getting ready. If that's if that's the reaction, yeah. Here's the thing from the 14 year old having seen Toy Story four. We 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 should brace ourselves for a whole bunch of repeats from the kind of emails we got for Toy Story three. Yeah. Well, I I, I saw the trailer for Toy Story four, or at least I saw a trailer for Toy Story four in the cinema, and I I liked it, which is good because I've been very very antsy about it happening because I think Toy Story is the perfect. Well, I think you and I both think it's a perfect mm-hmm. trilogy. Why do you need another one? Uh, anyway, so that looks anyway. That sounds good. So uh, Aaron says, in any case, free of the hang-ups from the emoji mess, we loved spending time with Ralph, uh, Vanellope, and especially the Disney princesses. Yeah, so there uh, we go. There we go. See, I would highly recommend the movie. I've never had an email read out before, but if you do, I'd appreciate a was up for my dear husband, who's been undergoing chemotherapy treatments for the past few months. It would bring him and indeed any other cancer sufferers in the church to hear some encouragement. Uh, from your good selves. Thank you for being a bright spot in a very dreary autumn season for us. Um, and, and, all, and all our best wishes. Yes, to dear husband, um, who is unnamed, I think. But um, if if you're the, the husband of Erin Henley, uh, all our good wishes to you. Yeah, and a nice kind him. of corrective for, uh, for Ralph Briggs. Yeah, there. absolutely. So it's 2.35. Uh, if you've just joined us, uh, we're about to talk to Olivia Coleman. But Mark, what are the big movies to review today? Uh, we're going to have Aquaman. Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, and Mortal Thoughts, all of which I imagine that there will be emails about because they're all playing already through through pre- Mortal Engine. What did I say? Mortal Thoughts. Oh, I beg your pardon. Mortal Engines. Mortal Thoughts is a film as well. Okay. But well, it's a very different are film. Are you going to talk about that? Why don't I, you, I'll talk about that instead. Why don't you talk about that? I'll talk about that. And okay. you, you, you can review Mortal Engines and okay. I'll review Mortal Thoughts. All right. Very good. Uh, okay. So that's still to come. It's 2.36. Uh, not content with being just one queen, Elizabeth II, <laughs> obviously in the next series of The Crown. Olivia Colman is also... Queen Anne in The Favourite, which is out in UK cinemas on January the 1st. Uh, but it, I think it's previewing in in a few Yeah, so basically, well, it previews in London from Boxing London. Day. It technically opens nationwide on January the 1st, but apparently it, there are previews in London. So, you, you know, it opens on Boxing Day, but it opens properly on January right. the 1st. OK, so my conversation with two queens, Coleman, coming up. First is she is in The Favourite with Rachel Weiss, who plays Lady Sarah. Other people really angry about the land tax. The Tories must not be rode roughshod over, though. And more dead if we do it. It is painful to lose men, but we cannot be half-hearted in this or they will see our weakness and take us and we will lose thousands more. Uh, None for the Queen. What? Well, you cannot have hot chocolate. Your stomach, the sugar inflames it. Abigail, hand me that cup. Do not. I'm sorry, I do not know what to do. Oh, fine, give it to her. Then you can get a bucket and a mop for the aftermath. And that is a clip from The Favourite. Uh, it stars Olivia Coleman, and Olivia joins us in the studio. Hello, Olivia, how are you? Hi, good, thanks. stars more than just me. That's a... No, that's true, <laughs> that but, it's, but you, are, you are Queen Anne in a movie about Queen Anne. Yeah, and her equal friends. And her equal friends. And I was thinking when I was watching the film, I don't think I've interviewed you since Tyrannosaur. No, that's right, yeah. Which for you actually then became... Such a big movie, such an... I think you and Paddy Considine came in. We came, yeah. Uh, you and Mark. That's right, that's right, that's right. So that's 2011. And that was kind of the start of a lot of good things for you. Yeah, that changed everything, yeah. So here we are, many years later. Give us some thoughts about uh, The Favourite and and your Queen Anne. I loved doing it. And actually, bringing up Tyrannosaur, it was a similarly sort of joyous experience doing Tyrannosaur and doing this film. And when when the favourite finished filming, the next day after we'd all said goodbye, I felt genuinely quite bereft that I wasn't going to work. I loved it so much. And Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz 
And all of us you know, became such good friends. What's interesting about making a film about Queen Anne mm. is that when it starts, you're thinking, oh, OK, here comes another period, period drama. Uh, another period <laughs> drama. We've yeah. seen these frocks. But then not only does it very quickly become obvious that this isn't just another period drama, yeah. but the fact that it's about Queen Anne, I sat there thinking, I can't remember Anything, what yeah. year is it? And unhelpfully, the film doesn't start with the year. Yeah, uh, and I can't tell you either because I can't retain dates. No, well, Queen Anne, so I looked it oh, up. You've she, well she's on the throne, 1702 to 1714. Right. And your husband, Prince George of Denmark, died in 1708. Yes. So are you a widow in this film? Yes, I think he's died before the film starts. So It doesn't mention it. And the thing, Yorgos, you can ask him questions. He goes, oh, I don't know. Uh, he He's sort of enjoys director. the fact yes sorry Yorgos yeah. Lanthimos the director who's incredible but he loves just making you you have to think about it there's a lot of questions about the very end final scene of the film and people go what's that mean and he goes I don't know what do you want it to mean what do you think which I love him for that and it's so so often spoon fed what they would like you to think and he likes what people come up with yes just tell us about your Queen Anne and the research that you did in coming up with this hilarious, tragic, monstrous child of a queen? <laughs> well, I didn't do any research because I always think it's in the script. If the script's good enough, it's all there. And this really was all there. I knew when she was monstrous, when she was childish, when she was all of those things, the work had been done. You know, I sort of uh, looked at images of that period to see you know, the sumptuous stuff they wore and I could picture what they wore. And, and But then we were wearing those things anyway, so that was also done for us. Emma and Rachel had to wear corsets. I didn't really, which is great. I just wore big nighties. <laughs> and I knew nothing about Queen Anne from school. I don't remember that ever coming up in my history lessons. And anyone I've spoken to who went to the school in the UK can't remember. <laughs> no, that's true. So there's, there's lots of big history going on off screen. There's yeah. a war against Spain yeah. and England and Scotland have just Becoming been united, united and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But all of that sort of doesn't matter, yeah. does it? There's you yeah. in a nighty yeah. <laughs> and Rachel. Yeah. Uh, we, should, we should explain a bit more. Okay, so this, this central kind of triangle, mm. the love triangle, I guess, with you and Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, just explain mm. who they are and how they are vying for your favours. So Queen Anne, the most powerful person you can be in a nation at that time, is the monarch. Her childhood friend, Sarah Churchill, Lady Marlborough, is um, sort of running the country on the Queen's behalf because the Queen is often suffering from ill health. And so Sarah Churchill's sort of in charge, but also their lovers. And Abigail Hall, who becomes Lady Masham, is a distant cousin of Sarah Churchill's. She's fallen on hard times, comes to the palace to ask for a job and works her way up through the ranks and ends up also becoming a lover of the Queen. And so then there's this very uncomfortable sort of triangle where Sarah Churchill and Abigail Masham are vying for the attentions of the Queen because she's you can't have a job particularly then you can't have your own money it's all dependent on the man you marry or the rank you're in and so if you can be favoured by the Queen that's the only way to survive really. How unusual was it as far as you're concerned to, to be in a film where, the, where there's a triangle of three women at the heart of the story? This keeps coming up <laughs> it's amazing isn't it three women in charge of a film <laughs> But I can think of many films where there have been, well, Bridesmaids in recent years, Thelma and Louise, uh, Baby Jane. You know, it's, it's always happened. And every time it happens, people go, wow, who'd have thought, you know, you can watch a film with three women in the lead. Why does it keep coming up? I don't know. Because it still, it still, <laughs> still feels Because it's not common enough. If it was every other film, we'd stop asking. It does happen. And it does happen a few times each year. But that's not good enough. And that's why I think it keeps coming up. 
But this isn't the first. And each time it happens, it's great because 51% of the population in the UK is female. So we should be represented. (laughs) I want to ask you about this uh, one particular scene. And I don't think it's a spoiler because these events were many hundreds of years ago. So I don't, you know, it is out. Everything is out there. But it sort of gets to the heart of, it seems to me, of who your Queen Anne is and who Queen Anne genuinely was. And that's the heartbreaking fact that she lost 17 children. Mm. And that scene where you explain that is incredibly powerful because it's raucous and funny at at one moment. Mm. Then suddenly your Queen Anne is telling us this heartbreaking fact and it all kind of slots into place because, of course, that would make anyone mad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When I found out that when reading the script, then I didn't care how she behaved. (laughs) I thought after losing that much pain... Losing that every single one of her children, 17 children, all died. The eldest got to 11. I think you can behave however you want after that. You can, you know, that informed everything for me, how she was. Which came first, Olivia, Queen Anne or Queen Elizabeth II in terms of the gig? Oh, <laughs> uh, Queen Anne, yes. Yeah, not historically, obviously. No, Queen no Anne. but Queen Anne job-wise as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, so at what stage in that did you hear about the... The gig coming up for for the crown. Well, maybe I was midway through doing the favourite when I found out about the crown. Oh, I can't really remember. I'm not very good at placing when things happen. <laughs> a few years ago, now we interviewed Claire Foy, just as and she'd done a movie with Andrew Garfield, and we did an interview with them together. And she knew that it was you, and she was oh. so desperate to tell us. Oh, but, but she didn't. It hadn't say been you. announced. She was just, you know, oh, if I'd given her, her if I'd given her a tenner, she probably would. Or a, <laughs> you know what I mean? She was so keen so to when say was that? it was Olivia Coleman. Two or three years ago, I can't okay. remember, but it was. She was so excited, oh. and it does feel to a lot of people, and I know that other people have said this to you, that it's after many years, it feels as though there's a, a career explosion about to happen for you, that, because not just the awards for the favourite and for you, the Venice Festival, the Biffers, Golden Globe nominee, Oscar talk, and so on for for this. Why are you cringing? Silly. <laughs> Why are you cringing? <laughs> I don't know, it's, just, it's silly, isn't it? Why is it silly? <laughs> you picture it when you're little, don't you? And then people talk about it. And then you try not to get excited because it's sort of silly. And then you don't want to, you don't want to get your hopes up. So it just seems absurd. Now I'm from North Norfolk. That's and, a fantastically uh, <laughs> British, <laughs> British reaction uh, to it. No, but, but the combination of just the buzz for the favourite and the fact that you're stepping into the Queen's shoes after the extraordinary run with Claire for it just feels like it's this is going to be your moment that's all well no, that's not that's a question nice. but. yeah <laughs> I genuinely love working I love getting up in the morning and going to work it just so happens that more people are watching the jobs I do now <laughs> I just want to try and think of that you know keep enjoying it and appreciating it you must have had part of you comparing Queen Anne with Queen Elizabeth II only because they sit on the same Throne, but such yeah. incredibly. No, I haven't. Women. Yeah, no. They've both got Queen in their name, and that's where the similarities end. Yeah, I can't compare the two at all. Is it true that you've um, taught your parents to use Netflix? Yeah, bless them. <laughs> I was excited I'd got the crown. They went, What's that? I went, Oh, no. What to... Did they not know? No. Mum only watches Coronation Street. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So have they watched the old ones? Yeah, so they started at the beginning. And uh, I think Mum pulled a very un-mum sort of four-hour stint. You know. She binged what? She binged. 
So now she's going to... So did she like Claire now. Foy? Loved her. But everyone, everyone does. The, the world does. And my husband... I knew about the job when I was watching the second season and my husband kept going... Because I was in love with Claire Foy as well. And he kept going, God, look at her. She's amazing. Every note. I mean, she's, she's incredible. I was like, oh, all right. I'm going to have to do this now. <laughs> That's how the world feels. So I really hope it's okay when I come in. And was there a moment in in the filming of The Favourite where you thought, because I know you've you worked with Anthemos before, mm-hmm. where you thought actually we're onto something here. You know, this is funny. It's grotesque. It's riotous. It's a court drama. It's a period drama. Mm-hmm. You know, but that you that it felt as though some you know some something special would be happening. Yeah, I feel that quite often with some things, and I don't care if no one else sees it. We're doing something or watching someone in a scene going, you're that's amazing what you just did and that's enough for me. And it felt like that a lot on The Favourite and it is particularly nice when it comes out and other people really like it. You go, I'm not mad, that was really... I knew it was lovely. I feel that on in smaller moments quite often. It feels as though that at the end of the film you you would want to stay in touch with Rachel Weisz, who I know you've played yeah. before, and with Emma Stone. Yeah, and that you we're friends for life now. Stay mates. Well, I think that. <laughs> so I'm going to be the annoying one who's going, hi, guys. <laughs> Come for lunch. So given that you're going to have an amazing 2019, what are we going to see you in next? Or, or can you even think beyond The Crown? Les Miserables is, is oh, yes. on, isn't it? Yes, uh, that in, starts on the 30th Sunday, 9 o'clock. BBC oh, one. right, OK, yes. That then. That's next. Okay. <laughs> um, Olivia, it was 2011 when you came in for Tyrannosaur, which was clearly a big movie for you. So let's not leave it seven, eight years until the next time. I suspect we probably won't. (laughs) Thanks for coming in and happy Christmas. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And you. Thank you. Olivia Coleman talking about Queen Anne. Uh, So is there anybody more unbelievably, charmingly self-effacing? I don't think I've ever spoken to someone. The the essence of that interview and that character trait that you're talking about is when I obviously brought up the subject of winning awards and that it may well win more. And she found it excruciating. You could hear her, you know, she winced. She said, well, this is all ludicrous. I come from North Norfolk. You know, I can't possibly, you know, I can't possibly win anything because that's where I come. You know, and she just didn't want to hear it. I mean, she clearly loves her work and the people who work with her think she's utterly brilliant. Yeah. But she just won't hear of her own stardom. It's fantastic. So I'm seeing the favourite uh, on Monday, but it sounds to me like... Because you're, this you've is got what, Mary Poppins Returns and the favourite. But this always happens at this time of year because I have to see everything that comes out in the week that's released. You often see stuff that's ahead of me. And so now you've, you've seen Poppins and you've seen mm-hmm. the new Yorgos Lanthimos, which I'm really looking forward to. I could... I could have a what's your favourite Yorgos Lanthimos film up until now question. I haven't seen any until now. Okay. You didn't see Lobster? Didn't see Lobster. Shall I lend you a DVD of Lobster? I've got a lot of DVDs to watch over Christmas. Have you got around to Jeremy? That's not on the list, actually. Is it not? No, no, and unlikely to be so. But, you know, you never know what's what's going to turn up. Are you never going to watch it? Well, probably not, no, because it keeps the gag going for a little bit longer. So you're never going to watch Jeremy, you're never going to watch Exorcist? I I think that's probably right. Okay. Okay, I hope that's okay with you. Anyway, I think you'll love the favourite. Disappointing. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it, and I hear nothing but great things. The only, my only gripe about it, I'll be, I mean, you'll probably love it, is the soundtrack. There was a point where it was so excruciating, as in the the, the music, the music. In the background. I wanted to leave because I thought, please make that stop. And what, and what and what is it about it that's? It sounds. Can you describe it. It's a. I think it's a violin or possibly a cello solo. <laughs> a violin or possibly. And then a piece of percussion. They sound very different. But they've done it to make it sound like a ticking clock. That's okay. what they've done it to. Right. So it might, 
I'm just trying to recall. Anyway, but it, and it goes. So what on. does it do? Sing it. What is it what? No, it's not really a tune. Okay, but it's a bit magic roundabouty. So it goes boom, boom, and that's it. Boom forever. <laughs> Sounds like eyes wide shut. And then it stops. Boom. And then later on, it starts again. <laughs> this is the picture. I love the acting. I love, but please make that. Violin Oi, slash cello. Yorkos, no, stop it! <laughs> I realise you, it's a, you're making a statement here. I've had enough of the statement. <laughs> Thank you very much. Anyway, it's got my favourite dance sequence of the year in it. So wow! So that's yeah. Olivia Coleman uh, and the favourite. So before we do, uh, can I? A review. Oh, okay. Before you want, you want to do a review, why don't I do a review first, and then you can pick up a, an email afterwards? Do you think? Yeah. By the way, what do you know about Queen Anne? Well, nothing at all. I know. That's that's what I think so many people will go into this movie going, so Mary, Queen of Scots, you go, okay. Ah, you, Mary, Queen of Scots. We'll know a little bit about that. But Queen Anne, I can't remember seeing Queen Anne, no. actually, uh, as the subject of a film. So I, I know nothing. So I don't know. Who is she married to? I don't know. She's married to uh, Prince George. Yeah, you've seen the film. I haven't seen it yet. Well, he's not in it. So you come out yeah. thinking, and as she, as she says in the interview, the, the director doesn't see it as his job to explain anything no. at all. Good. So you have to go away and look at it. That's why you should watch Dogtooth. Okay. So why don't I watch something brand new? Okay, so Lizzie, uh, Chloe Savini and Kristen Stewart star in a film about Lizzie Borden. So <clears throat> when I say Lizzie Borden, what immediately comes to your mind? Absolutely nothing. Oh, okay. So Lizzie Borden, who was a real life figure who in 1892, I think it was, became the main suspect in the gruesome murder of her father and stepmother. So you must know the rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 41. Nope. Oh, okay. It, it's a sort of almost like a folkloric tale, but it's based in, in in truth. When I people say Lizzie Borden to me, I think of the filmmaker Lizzie Borden, who of course was Linda Borden, and then took the name Lizzie Borden as a kind of act of self-defining rebelliousness. Okay. She made Born in Flames. I start with a clean slate then. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that that, that that's that's interesting. It also, slightly strange because because the the film is about. A story that's kind of well known, but 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 famously nobody really knows what happened. So anyway, okay. Well, I famously don't know anything about it. No, so. okay, okay, fine. So, um, but it's become one of those things that criminologists and you know argue about it. So, uh, Christmas Stewart is Bridget, who um is a maid who comes to the Borden household, where Abby, the stepmother played by Fiona Stewart, tells her immediately that she will be called Maggie, okay. because she's come to work in the household. She's no longer allowed to be called Bridget. She's now going to be called Maggie. Very soon, she falls foul of Andrew Borden, played by Jamie Sheridan, who tells her to leave her door unlocked with, you know, expectedly horrible consequences. He is a loathsome figure who rules in the film, who rules the house with an iron rod and uh, tyrannises Lizzie, whom he finds to be wayward. He tells her she can't go to the theatre, she can't go out doing this, she can't do that. She, however, is very independently spirited, and takes Bridget under her wing, seeing a kindred spirit, and starts to teach her how to read. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Pardon me. Impediments. It's a much nicer word for obstacle, don't you think? Are you at schooling? Some. How much is some? A couple of years. Are you afraid? Afraid? What? Men don't have to know things, Bridget. Women do. 
So you can hear from that the sort of it's it's very low key in its tone for an awful lot of the drama. And um, it's directed by Craig William McNeil, written by Bryce Cass, and it then goes on to imagine what may have happened with the murders and to construct a sort of version of events that it seemed to have taken um, inspiration from Ed McBain's uh, book from 1984, which is similarly called Lizzie, although it's not actually the, not the credited source. Um, I thought this was really interesting. There's two things about it. On the, there was a part of it that reminded me slightly tonally of Heavenly Creatures. Now, don't get me wrong. Heavenly Creatures, I think, is is the superior film because Heavenly Creatures is a really, really remarkable, timeless piece of work. And I think it is just brilliant. But there is a similar sort of milieu about two central characters moving inexorably toward a violent act about which we know something. And the film is trying to kind of get inside, you know, how that may have played out. The other thing I, I really liked about it is that you do get a stifling sense of the household in which this is happening, which reminded me of the environment of that film, Lady Macbeth. And when I was reviewing Lady Macbeth, I talked about, I said, you know, the sound of the inside of the house, which is completely different to the sound of what's going on outside. Inside, it's all, you know, wooden uh, doors and chairs on floors. And outside, it's, you know, wind and breathiness. Well, here, what you have is that sense of a stifling house with nature outside it so there's a sense of the ruly surrounded by the unruly uh james sheridan is very very good as the uh, abusive father but those two central uh characters played by Kristen stewart and, and um and chloe savini i thought did did an awful lot with very understated scenes there's a moment in the sort of third act of the film when it moves towards, you know, what we know is coming. I mean, the film begins with the revelation of, of, of a killing and it's then sort of un, unfolding and going backwards, which is why the film assumes that you already know the Lizzie Borden story to some extent, um, which is why I said it's just just interesting that you, that you don't know it at all. And I, and I wonder how the film would play if you didn't know it at all. But um, what I liked is that the most powerful stuff is the conversations between those two characters in which they they have this relationship in which they realise that, that there are things about them that are kindred spirit, but there are also things about them and their circumstances and their outlook on life which are completely different. I have no idea, nobody does, whether or not the, the version of events that is proposed on the screen is true, In a, you know, like that's actually what happened, but it doesn't matter. What matters is it's taking a story that it assumes you sort of know a version of and is doing a kind of revisionist look at it and looking at it very much from the perspective uh, of the women involved and trying to sort of take it apart in interesting ways. And I thought it was intriguing and there's an element of you know, there's an element of, of, of horror in there. It's a sort of psychological thriller, but it's really a character study that just happens to be tied up with this thing which has become so infamous that it became a sort of, you know, like, like a nursery rhyme. And the film is called? Lizzie. OK. Uh, so some more reviews on the way. I think you might be interested in this from... Uh, Real Dr. Craig A. N. Stockdale. Yeah. Honorary Prof, Honorary Doctor. I have listened with some dismay over recent weeks to the trials and tribulations of those most downtrodden of the downtrodden masses, namely cinema employees. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've had uh, some mail about this. What a litany of woe is this, and a damning indictment of the popcorn-munching troglodytes apparently attending British cinema. This is according that's to a, That's a word which is not used enough. Troglodyte? Yeah. I write... To you, not to offer sympathy, although I offer that too, but a hope of solution. I live in Norway. Yes, it is very nice, thank you. But, <laughs> but no, you can't join our club. 
bit of politics there. Very good. Well, you have to go on a course now. In my adoptive... No, because I'm reading the opinions of Craig, you know, mm. so I think that's fine. In my adoptive homeland, at least one major cinema chain yeah. has introduced pre-screening introductions by the ushers. Huh. Before a film starts, there is a brief pause during which a real, live, in-the-flesh usher appears and thanks us all for attending, hopes we enjoy the film and asks us nicely to help them by taking all our rubbish home with us. Very good. In some of the busiest cinemas, this is replaced with a recorded message by an usher or at least an actor dressed up like one, actually thinking about it, almost certainly an actor. This almost laughably Scandinavian practice to humanise the cinema staff and create a feeling of solidarity and commonality which... Only the most heartless, shoe-removing consumer of Mexican meals could shrug off. It turns what has unfortunately become a faceless, sterile corporate vacuum back into a place of employment where real people try to do their real and sometimes unpleasant jobs. I realise that ushers are not like you performing monkeys, but it, thank you. But if this practice hasn't already been adopted by any of the cinema chains in the UK, then perhaps it jolly well should be as we say in Norway. Tickety-tonk and down with all badly behaved cinema goers. Well, it's hard to disagree That's with That's fantastic. Anything. The only comparison I can think of is if you see a film at Universal, Dave, the security guard, gives us a little pithy, you're going to enjoy this one. Yeah, there's an IMAX cinema where they often introduce you and say, thank you very much, Steve, for coming. It's, you know, I'm Bob, I'm your usher I'll be your host. tonight. Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, real Dr. Craig, thank you very much indeed. Mark, what are you reviewing in the next hour? Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Mortal Engines, The House That Jack Built and more. Oh, hey, welcome to the final hour of this programme. It's five minutes past three. The final hour, when it's only two hours. We're still final. final hour is like second hour. Second and final hour. I know, but it's like, it's just it's a weird thing to say. It's like, you know, welcome to the second half. And the final half. It's five minutes past three. Uh, welcome to the programme. It's hour two. Is that all right? Is it our tune? Hour two is fine. It's just it seems weird to say final when there's only two of them. But it is the final hour. <clears throat> is it not? It, yes, it is technically. It's no, just technically, just not very grammatically, you know, it implies something else. Final, imp- uh, never mind. Does final imply this? Final implies that there's more than two, yeah. Don't I'm, you think? No, I'm not quite sure. Robin, final implies that there's more than two. No. Really? And there you go. And oh, that, Robin was just making up words in the control room. The, voice, ago, so. the voice of the puppet master. Um, <laughs> that will be sampled and used as a sat-nav now. If you uh, follow this programme on Twitter, which is at Wittertainment, and mm-hmm. if you don't... What are you it, doing with yourself? You may have seen uh, we've launched our Christmas movies Battle Royale uh, yep. to decide your favourite Christmas film of all time. Of it's all a, time. It's like a straight knockout thing, a bit like a sporting championship. Yes. Starting with 32 films picked by our top production team. You've just heard from one of them. Uh, is this Robin part of the top production team? Well, yeah. I mean, Isn't right. he in charge of the top production team? Oh, I suppose team? he is. Yeah. Anyway, it ends up with your uh, festive favourite, which will be announced on our final live show. See, final live show. Anyway, there's, <laughs> it's the F word again getting me into trouble. And that's next Friday. It's all happening on Twitter at Wittertainment. It's so all kicking off. You can have a look now, you can take part and then keep checking back over the next week for the latest matches. We're currently in round one, match one. Uh, sorry, we're currently in round one, full stop. Match one happened this morning and I can tell you it's a wonderful life was playing Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yes, and guess what won? Well, surprisingly, 
It, uh, not surprised. It's a wonderful life. Ninety-two percent of the vote. But I was very strictly instructed to point out that other Christmas films are available because obviously the whole thing about this is it's it's up to you what you vote on. And just because we all know what I think of It's a Wonderful Life, that doesn't mean that anybody else should should fall in. No, that, no. Well, that's also true. But I, I think Ah, oh, Mary. It's a Wonderful Life was like always going to beat Silent Last Night. Last the Moon, Mary. Would you like me to do that? Voting in match two closed just um, as we see here, Mister Potter. Came on air at two with Holiday Inn losing out to Trading Places. Really? Which got 80% of the vote. (laughs) You can currently vote in match three, which is Die Hard versus A Christmas Carol, the 1984 version. And that one is open until five. Okay, well, I mean, that's that's a done deal, isn't it? I would have thought so. Now I have a machine gun. Matches ho, ho, ho. will continue every day until next Friday, so you can stay across everything at uh, Widdertainment. The final poll will close at 2pm on December 21st. So will this go all the way through to next Friday show? Yep. Full Brilliant. terms and conditions can be found on the Five Live website should you, should you need terms and conditions, because there ain't no prize. <laughs> it's just a very entertaining way of spending uh, a few moments. So I would That's think... That's the Marx Brothers joke, isn't it? There ain't no sanity clause. It might be... It, might, it could end up as It's a Wonderful Life against Die Hard, which would be quite an interesting battle. But you can't... It may not be the case, because the way these knockout things work, anything can get knocked out at any point. Hence the the term... Knockout. Knockout. Yes, it's a knockout. Um, It's eight minutes past three o'clock. Let's do some brand new stuff. So Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which I think we uh, have a correspondence about. One of the interesting things about this week's three big releases is that I saw all three of them, not in preview screenings, but in uh, screenings in uh, cinemas, because... Uh, two of them were previewing from Wednesday. One of them was previewing from Saturday. So I thought, well, you know, I'll go along and I'll go and see them with audiences because I, I do think sometimes that makes a difference. So this is co-produced by Lord Miller, who made Lego Movie and 21 Jump Street, which actually are quite good touchstones for, for what's to come. The script is co-written by, by uh, Phil Lord. Voice cast includes showing more, Jake, uh, Hayley Steinfeld, Mahershala Ali, Lee Tomlin, Nick Cage. And so... At the beginning, we meet Miles Morales, whose character apparently first appeared in Ultimate Fallout number four. I should state from the outset that what I know about comic books would not fill the back of a postage stamp. This is always where I would take my hat off to somebody like Jonathan Ross, who really knows this stuff, and I don't. I just know the the worlds from the films. Um, He's a kid who thinks Spider-Man is great, but he doesn't like his new school. His dad is a cop who thinks Spider-Man is a reckless rogue and drops his son off at school in the most embarrassing way. You may well have seen this clip already because it's in the trailer, but it's just super charming. This is pulling up in the cop car, dropping his son off outside the school where he is desperate to fit in. Spider-Man. I mean, this guy swings in once a day, zip zaps up in his little mask and answers to no one, right? Yeah, Dad, yeah. I love you, Miles. Yeah, I know, Dad. You gotta say I love you back. Dad, are you serious? I wanna hear it. You wanna hear it? I love you, Dad. You're dropping me off out of school? I love you, Dad. Look at this place. Dad, I love you. Dad, I love you. That's a copy. (laughs) I'm sorry, isn't that a lovely scene? Charming. I mean, even just hearing it, even without sort of seeing the visuals. So, anyway, he has a a crush on a young girl who he meets who we immediately know is going to be another part of the story. He has a penchant for graffiti, which is encouraged by his uncle. And while he's out spray painting, he's bitten by a spider. 
turns out that there is a particle accelerator which can pull together alternate universes. And so all these various incarnations of Spider-Man from all these various universes all start finding themselves in the same space. So it's basically a play on the idea that there have been many iterations of Spider-Man and many versions of Spider-Man, and this is a version of the world in which all of these Spider-People come together so he meets uh he, there's a there's like a kind of a deadpool like spider-man who's old and tired there's uh spider-woman there's spider-man noir there's penny parker there's peter porker who is a kind of the cartoon pig again if you've seen the, the trailer you'll know all this stuff and that idea of having multiple versions of the same character is something that we we're all sort of used to because if you think about it We've had so many versions of Spider-Man. I mean, even in the, even since the time that we've been doing this show, okay, we've had Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, we've had Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, we've had Tom Holland Spider-Man, who are all as different as the various incarnations of Doctor Who. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you remember recently when there was just so much fuss about how Doctor Who could or couldn't be portrayed, Doctor Who has to be male, and it turns out as it, everyone's perfectly accepted. The whole thing about Doctor Who is it's a character that can be done in any different way. And crucially... Each different Doctor Who sort of seems to inhabit a different world. The tone of the world through which they move is very much defined by Doctor Who. So in the case of this, although all the characters are in the same world together, the immediate world that they occupy seems to be defined by them. And one of the cleverest things about the film is it's not just a matter of having a number of different characters in the same space. It's a number of different styles, a number of different movements, a number of different ways in which the universe appears to be treating them, which is defined by uh, who they are. There was an early press conference, <coughs> excuse me, which Lord Miller said they wanted to make it feel like you'd walked into a comic book and they wanted every frame to look to look like a comic uh, panel, which it really, really does. I mean, right down to the fact that the animation has got the kind of the dots that you would get, uh, you know, on printed comics and that strange sort of that the lining from, from the way the thing is printed. And at one point it had me thinking of, remember when Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out? Like we hadn't seen an awful lot of animation and live action mm. interaction. I mean, obviously you'd had it in things like Mary Poppins, but it's a, it was at a, a different level. But although this is all animation, the way in which the different animation styles come together did seem to me as striking as the juxtaposition of live action and uh, cartoon. There's a hint of the craziness of, you know, something like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I mean, this could actually be called Cloudy with a Chance of Spider-Man. It's very, very funny, like laugh out loud funny. And the audience that I saw it with were laughing at the jokes and the sort of the quickfire humour. But also it's it's touching because the whole point about Spider-Man is Spider-Man is an outsider story. All the best iterations of Spider-Man treat Spider-Man as the awkward outsider. That's why the whole friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man thing... I mean, if... You know, I mean, I've read some comics when I was younger and I always remember that thing about Spider-Man was he, he was always on the outside of everything. I know all comic book heroes are to some extent, but particularly in his case... And what you have here is a band of misfits. They're all fish out of water. They're all playing versions of the same misfit. And they're all in a universe which doesn't quite fit for them. And there was one thing that was strange, which was I saw the film in 2D. And when I saw it, there was a certain thing going on in the background that some of the backgrounds looked like they were unrectified 3D. 
And I had a conversation with somebody. He said, "Okay, it's a it's a deliberate decision. It was meant to be to draw your eye to the cent to the characters on screen, right at the centre of the screen. The fact that the back was slightly, you know, that kind of weird phasing thing, um, the uh, was deliberate so that your eye is drawn. I have to say, from my point of view, I did occasionally find that distracting because there were a couple of moments when I thought, "Hang on, I'm watching a 3D film and I haven't put the 3D glasses on." But if you're getting down to that level of quibbling then it means that generally the movie itself is is working really well. I, I mean, I thought it was very, very entertaining, very sharp, looked, looked pretty terrific. And and it had that really important thing that even for somebody like me who doesn't know much about the actual Spider-Man comic book universe, I got the jokes, I understood it because I, I found it moving because at the heart of it, it is that thing about a band of misfits all outside their own world, all in the wrong dimension, all searching for their kind of identity. And it's almost as if the world is searching for that identity with them. It's fun. Um, and a whole bunch of people have seen it. Oh, and good. Want, okay. want to take part yeah. in this conversation. Rachel Walker. I'm just out of a showing of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and I'm struggling to express how much I love this. Oh, great. Film. Good, good, good. Okay. First off, the animation is sublime. Mark often says we're in a golden age of animation and the art styles present in this really show that off mixing 2d and 3d seamlessly you could watch the whole movie in silence and still never be bored you would be losing out to do that though because the dialogue mixes consistently funny lines with a real sense of pathos and well-drawn characters that manage to have all distinct personalities whilst being the same character plus while the references aren't hugely noticeable throughout, the film massively re- rewards for having a bit of comic knowledge. Yeah, and I mean that's I I, I confess that I felt that I don't have much. But you of enjoyed that. it anyway. I enjoyed it anyway. This new Spider-Man film has performed a spectacular feat itself, bringing something new and exciting to a fourth reboot of a franchise. I could not recommend this film enough to anyone of any age with any interest in animation, superheroes, or enjoying oneself p.s the end credit scene is hugely worth it yeah passing the six laugh test on its, on its own. own chris terry phd student university of manchester political science i and my partner went to our local multiplex on sunday see spider-man into the spider-verse what we saw warmed my heart into the spider-verse is a tremendous film simultaneously delivering an ode to the character's legacy and inherent silliness of spider people in all their <laughs> forms whilst also providing at its heart a link to what has always been the strongest suit of Spider-Man, the idea that at his heart, Spider-Man is just a normal teenager who could be any of us, dealing with problems that are both fantastic and relatable. Can I just say, that again fits into the, you know, the misfit, the outside thing, because I think at some level, we all feel that same thing. I think at some level, everyone feels that they're a misfit. This mix pleased me, an established Spidey fan and my partner who's only ever seen a single Spider-Man film, the Holland version, uh, previously. Into the Spider-Verse tells this story with tremendous visual spark and a sequence towards the end, a feast for some eyes that rivals something from 2001 or or Interstellar. My only fear is that its status as an animated film may lead some potential viewers to dismiss it as insubstantial when it is anything but a story that drips with passion for its subject uh, subject matter real heart and humor it would it would only be seen as insubstantial if if i think people were somehow snotty about animation but i i i i do think that in the world we're living in at the moment that's not the case lewis in cambridge is lewis meek yeah. as a dad of two under fives 
I rarely escape from NCG's cave. This is non-cinema goers' okay. nave. So by the the time I see most of the movies discussed on your show, the discussion has usually long since moved on. Okay. For once, my timeline merged with yours on Saturday when I took my four-year-old son to see Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I just wanted to say that it was really great and worked brilliantly for both me and my four-year-old son. Some of the jokes went over his head, but there was nothing inappropriate and there were plenty that we laughed at together, which was a real treat. The actions and visuals were spectacular and well worth seeing on the big screen. The levels of threat and violence were fine for my my four-year-old, less intense than Big Hero 6 or The Incredibles movies, for example. While it, well, wasn't, that's interesting. That's interesting. while it wasn't a weepy, it did have some emotional and thematic weight. It does. Basically, I would heartily recommend it, particularly as a father and son outing. So that's interesting. And I hadn't got that from what we'd said so far. What, that it has? No, but you could take a four-year-old. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, that hadn't occurred to me. Um, let me check what certificate it is. But, uh, I mean, if somebody just did that, then they'd be probably better, better If it's placed. less intense than Big Hero 6, you would think... It would yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's odd. It's just that was a comparison that I hadn't thought of. In terms of if, you, if you'd said to me which one, was, which one was more or less intense, I wouldn't have... I don't know what... But well, you while know. you're checking it, Alan McClarty yeah. in Coleraine, I had a, the good fortune of taking my daughters, Erin, age nine, and Eva, age six and a half, to see Spider-Man. This last weekend, what can I say? This was a work of art. The animation was stunningly beautiful with loads of humour, action, great set pieces, good old-fashioned storytelling, but done in a brand new way. The animated gauntlet has been drawn ahead of the Academy Awards and we have a strong contender to dethrone the House of Mouse in, <laughs> in the best animated feature category, a movie of the year contender for me. Yeah, so so Alan has taken a six-and-a-half-year-old and a nine. Yeah, well, there we go. It's a certificate is PG... And uh, so they're so and the PG for moderate fancy violence, mild threat, injury detail, and innuendo. And the the reason that I'm slightly uh, pleased actually by that is I never watched it thinking um, this it, it was anything vanilla about it at all. You know, sometimes people think a PG movie means it'll be a little bit bland, but not, not absolutely not at all. In fact, I ha- I hadn't even thought of the certificate when I, a 56 year old man, was watching it. So maybe, and I haven't seen this, and this is I'm going back to a previous era almost toy story the first movie is a pg and i remember going to see it this child one was five six you know something something like that yeah yeah and but you you see it and then every parent makes their own decision but in the opinion of alan and yeah 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 absolutely fine and gavin who's 29 in glasgow it would be very easy to make assumptions about the tone and audience of this film based on the usual target audience of an animated comic book movie however whether it was intended as a kid's movie like all good kids movies it succeeded first as a movie, yeah, exactly. and then as a kids' movie. Exactly. The, an- the animation was simply superb. I lost count of the different styles utilised throughout, ranging from the more contemporary styles of manga to Pixar to the cartoony onomatopoeia of Looney Tunes and Adam West and lots more <laughs> in between. Plot devices such as time travel and interdimensional travel could easily lead to an overly complex, confusing story, but it never felt out of hand. Likewise, the tone was balanced, blending humour, darkness and lump-in-the-throat moments appropriately in well-measured doses. Also, where would a quirky left-field superhero movie be without a sprinkling sprinkling of Nicolas Cage? In recent years, the cinemas have been saturated with comic book movies and there's been a few meh outings. However, this took something that everyone will feel they've seen a million times and made it totally original. For me, a pleasant surprise and one of my films of the year. Very good. Again, interesting films of the year phrase, which is coming up into a lot. Very good. About Spider-Man. Well, I'm glad that we all appear to be on the same page. 
What else you got then? <clears throat> Mortal Engines. Now, you saw this before I did, okay? Um, again, I saw this in the cinema show last weekend because it was previewing from last weekend, although it theoretically opens today. Adapted from the novel by Philip Reeve, which I confess I haven't read. Have you? Yes. And have you read all four of them? No, just the first one. Okay, so you were familiar with the story before you yeah. saw the film. And Philip okay. Reeve is, is a fantastic creator of worlds you know, okay. in, in, into which you disappear with great alacrity and is the is the book brilliant yes okay fine. absolutely brilliant. so this is uh, directed by christian rivers but produced by peter jackson with a screenplay by jackson fran walsh and philip boyne so he's regular collaborators uh story is and it's quite complex so correct me if i get any of these details wrong after this sort of semi quasi-apocalyptic war humanity is regrouped they now live in mobile cities basically cities which get up and roam around the wastelands eating other cities, devouring other cities under a principle known as municipal Darwinism. Which is a fantastic phrase. It's a fantastic phrase. The Anti-Traction League have developed... Uh, they are sort of the, uh, you know, the, the counter to all of this. They the want, freedom fighters. The freedom, freedom fighters, but they want, you know, they, they want to settle. London is on the rampage going across these lands looking for towns to uh, for cities to to eat and when you say london's on the rampage it's literally like there is this huge big thing which has got some poles here and you know bits of architecture that you recognize and it's m- moving around on these huge great big uh, rollers um uh, it catches a city whose population includes hester shaw who wants to uh, assassinate thaddeus valentine she teams up with Tom, played by Robert Sheehan, and together they flee London into the great hunting ground. Here's a clip. I've got you. Tom! Tom! Look at me. Ask him why you murdered my mother. No! No! It's not your fault. She was saying the craziest things, and then she's just... What did she say, Tom? She said you murdered her mother. Murder? That's an ugly word. I'm sorry you had to hear that. Yeah. Oh, I should go. Yeah, you should. Me, Hugo Weaving, murder her mother? Surely not. But all I can think of when he says that murder is an ugly... All I can think of is a riot is an ugly thing from Young Frankenstein. Oh, OK. So, you know... The anyway, new- that, that was peak Hugo Weaving. Was peak Hugo Weaving, wasn't it? He was enjoying himself. So, as you would expect... Um, the film has spectacle to spare. Peter Jackson was on the programme. How long ago was it now? Yeah, three weeks or three so. Three weeks ago. Now, yeah. Um, you know, because obviously he is he is a guiding light in the production. He's, you know, a co-writer with the script and the producer. Uh, the problem for me is I'm, I don't think the spectacle is enough. I remember Guillermo del Toro saying that one of the biggest challenges with Pacific Rim was making the kaiju and the robots look big, making them have a sense of being massive. And he had this whole you know, argument with the studio about whether 3D miniaturised things. Um, and in the these towns do look massive. I mean, there is no question that they look absolutely huge. And at, at their very best, they have something of the weird charm of the Studio Ghibli films, like, of you know, Laputa or of Howl's Moving Castle. You get that same sense of 
look at that huge, great, big, expansive thing moving across the wasteland, and it does genuinely seem properly big. At the other end, however, it can sometimes be reduced to transformers with towns. I mean, basically big towns hitting each other. And I think that that, that problem is, is uh, exaggerated because the characters themselves are not that well drawn. And it's it's tempting to say, well, you know, maybe the cast aren't making the most of I me. Mean, Hugo Weaving is having a lot of fun there, but it's tempting to say, well, you know, maybe it's it, it's it's a performance issue. But actually, I think it comes down to writing. I think it comes down to the way in which the script portrays those characters. It is significant that when um, Shrike appears, who is this character who is a it's from the army of the of the undead, basically, isn't it? It's like it's regenerated character. half corpse, half machine, <clears throat> half corpse, half machine. Who initially is introduced as a kind of Terminator-like figure, but then we discover has a really interesting connection with our heroine and has a proper character arc. And in the moments in which we see those two characters interacting, you start to think of things like, you know, Jeanne Caro or Terry Gilliam and that sort of, you know, mechanical humanity, dolls, mannequins, all that sort of stuff. And that's when the movie becomes the most fascinating. That's when it kind of really comes alive. And there is a good 30 minutes of that, which I really liked. But as soon as he's gone, the movie goes back to being this strange kind of... I mean, the best way of describing it is that when you see London lumbering across the wasteland... That's kind of what the film's like. There's a whole bunch of things in it that you recognise, because there's a bit of Star Wars in there as well. And you think towards the, the, the final act, it goes a bit Star Wars. Well, yes, plus also the whole thing about, you know, the evil empire and the, the, the yeah. rogues out there who are trying to fight back against the municipal Darwins, yeah. Darwinists. So, so more than a little Star Wars. And as I said, the, the Transformers thing, and to some extent, bits of So you look at this thing and it's got things in it that you recognise and it's moving in a strange sort of lumbering, cumbersome way that occasionally is really sort of quite fascinating but a lot of the time just looks sort of like it's plodding from one thing to the next. And the main problem was that whenever I wasn't in the company of Shrike, I found myself emotionally unengaged or disengaged. So I ended up looking at it thinking, well, I'm impressed by the scale, I'm impressed by the size but that in itself is not enough to carry the narrative. And I, I, did find it, I did find it disappointing in the end. The pair at the heart of it, she's Hester Shaw. I can't remember his name. Tom. Tom. I thought he was feeble. And, but Hester Shaw I liked. but he, She's good. But, I, but again, the, the, you almost feel that the role could have been more. I mean, I know it's you know, the, 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 she, right at the very, very centre of yeah. it. Charlotte Hartill in Bristol. I've been a fan of the book series ever since I was a child. Okay. But tried to approach this film on its own merits rather than as an, ad, as an yes, adaptation. which is a very good thing to Unfortunately, do. Unfortunately, I was disappointed. Visually, it was sumptuous and the world was immersive and intriguing. The character of Shrike, who you just mentioned, okay. was well handled and honestly the best part of the film for yes. me. Apart from those few positive points, I'm afraid I only have complaints. The pacing was rushed. The character's motivation seemed laughably thin, especially in the case of... Uh, Valentine, that's the Hugo Weaving character who Thaddeus, we just heard. Yeah. And the dialogue was truly cringe-inducing at points, which I agree. Yeah, again, we said it's a writing issue, isn't which it? Is, which is sort of embarrassing because Peter Jackson's the co-writer here. I know. Um, the less said about the ending, the better, so we won't. And don't get me started on the beautification of Hester in comparison to the counterpart in the books. In the books, her disfigurement is much more pronounced yeah, yeah. and it's been toned down for the film. But that's also, yeah, I mean, that's, that's also uh, something that was... Uh, 
that was levelled at Ready Player One, wasn't it? It truly saddens me to be so negative about a film I've been waiting for since I was seven. And so I wow. intend to go and give it a second watch if I can. I do want it to succeed and so hope it finds an audience more forgiving than I, says Charlotte. Simon Andrews, I found Mortal Engines a truly enjoyable romp. Okay. Succeeding because in true Peter Jackson style, it pays as much attention to the human elements referenced in the film's title as well as the mechanical. From the thrill and tension of the opening traction city chase to the explosive Titanic showdown, the special effects suitably dazzle but never overwhelm the audience alongside this the movie never loses sight of the need for character development with newcomer Hera Hilmer who plays Hester Shaw clearly destined for a huge international career Hugo Weaving is on fine form as the movie's big bad but it's Stephen Lang's damaged and tortured villain who ends up stealing the show he's hoping we'll get to see movie adaptations of the other three books in the series I wonder. Finally, Simon Prentice in Barry St. Edmund's Absolute Utter Tosh. (laughs) Too bloody and violent for my eight-year-old, too childish for my 15-year-old, appalling dialogue, totally predictable plot, easily the worst film of the year so far, and I've seen some real duffers. Stupid, (laughs) stupid, 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 then in capital letters, and with four exclamation marks, stupid. Thank you so much. Well, it is interesting that there appears to be unanimous feeling that the script is sorely lacking. Yes, it is. That the spectacle is the, the, one of the strongest, and that uh, Shrike is the is the best character in the in the film. I still think that that... You thought some of the visuals weren't great. I thought some of the CGI was dodgy in a couple of places, okay. but mainly I was along for the ride because I love the idea of the mm-hmm. municipal Darwinism. I like the idea of yeah. London on with a big engine and massive wheels. <laughs> and there is a line, as we mentioned in the Peter Jackson uh, interview, there's a line where, where someone says, uh, I knew it was a mistake to go into Europe. Yeah, that's and right. Was, you know, well, I'm not quite sure. It's become strangely topical. Uh, in the next half hour, what, we, uh, what are we... Uh, Aquaman, to? The House That Jack Built, which is the new film uh, by Lars von Trier, which caused uh, such a lot of fuss, and Free Solo. Uh, a while back, uh, Craig A.N. Stockdale was talking about... Uh, a Norwegian habit of pre-screening introductions to the movies yeah, done by great. ushers. What a great thing. Um, and suggested that it was introduced here. Well, Stuart Hubbard says uh, the little intro at the beginning of the film happens regularly at the Everyman in Birmingham. Brilliant. It's actually quite a refreshing experience and does indeed result in better behaviour and litter control. Merry Christmas to Jason Isaacs. Excellent. Uh, Richard Hennessy in Harrogate, you can reassure your Norwegian listener that at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate, a real human usher introduces the film. Adam, Har- Adam Harrow, uh, Everyman Cinemas introduce films with a real live usher, so tell the doctor in Norway we don't need to be in his club. I'll tell you my best... More politics. Hang on a second. Okay. And Sophie Gosling, ushers uh, on this subject, they do this at the Light Cinema in Stockport. They ask everyone to turn off their phones or turn down and say they will be around to help. It's a really nice way to start the film. So some cinemas do, and clearly Everyman cinemas are doing it regularly. When I went to see The Little Mermaid in the El Capitan uh, cinema on Hollywood Boulevard, Linda and I were uh, on holiday and we said, Alan Jones had said, you have to go and see a Disney movie play at El Capitan, and we did. And the ushers come round, you know, with the, 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 the trays of chocolate and everything and then before the film starts they all get up on stage and they they, they sing and dance and they do it because they're all they're performers I love that so there's a whole song and dance thing before the film even starts it was great TV movie of the week yes Christopher Hobday <laughs> excuse me says point break great dialogue bonkers action sequences and a really smart tightrope walk by Catherine Bigelow between critiquing masculinity and making a traditional macho movie I caught my first tube today Tim Kenyon, I think Dr. K will choose a single man, not least for a heartbreaking performance by Colin Firth and a tremendous directorial effort by Tom Ford. I will forever choose Point Break. 
Emma Bembridge, Brooklyn, broke me. As a recent immigrant to the US from the UK, not Ireland, and a sister back home who's been very ill since I moved here, I broke down into blubs of tears and snot as the credits roll. <laughs> Wonderful film, but I won't be watching it again and then adds a crying emoji. Okay. Daniel Mackley, 100% Tropic Thunder, if only to see Robert Downey Jr.'s Oscar-nominated performance as a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. Clive Albury, The Big Short, is one of the scariest films I've ever seen. Elf is great fun, but Point Break all the way. Uh, Phil Chan, without Point Break, there'd be no hot fuzz. Lewis Dunn, the mi- original Miracle on 34th Street. never seen Bad Boys 2? Is pure magic, nowhere near as sickly as its 90s remake and with a much stronger, much smarter ending, a proper Christmas classic. Um, no, I mean, which one do you want to watch first? James Croxford, I would go for... Point Break or The Ipcrest File. I could go for a, uh, a seasoned favourite like Miracle on 34th Street or Elf, but any week The Empire Strikes Back is on its default number one. Mark will pick something else, but he's wrong. Forget it. It's Stanford. What's TV movie of the week? He's not Judge Judy and Executioner. He's my dad. Sorry. Um, Brooklyn. I, 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 I mean, I love Point Break. I absolutely love Point Break, but I I think uh, I can't remember the last time Brooklyn was on telly. It's at... Uh, 8pm on Sunday on BBC Two, and I just thought it was wonderful. Did we interview Saoirse Ronan for it? Uh, I I don't think I did, no. Maybe Sanjeev did. Maybe it was. But it was. I, I just thought it was such a great film, really, really beautiful. Really, I mean, I love Point Break, and I love uh, Hot Fuzz, and I do think... You've never seen, you've never seen, Hot, you've never seen Bad Boys 2? <laughs> You're just going to do lines for I am, movie. because oh, okay, the thing stop. about Hot Fuzz, it is one of those films that the minute it gets into your head, you can't stop doing it. TV movie of the week, So Bad It's Bad. Oh, um, hang on, i got to turn over. So Bad It's Bad boils down to just Let's Be Cops or The Cold Light of Day. Wayne Brockway, The Cold Light of Day was utterly appalling. <clears throat> Karen Richardson, took my son to see The Cold Light of Day as I was a fan of Henry Cavill. Happy to see that his career has survived this piece of nonsense. A great cast, but a nonsensical, unengaging load of rhubarb. Karen Menzies, <laughs> they're both dreadful, but Mark will choose Let's Be Cops as it's beyond abysmal. And Catherine Ashworth, I saw the trailer for Let's Be Cops. I had nightmares for weeks. What's the, so bad it's bad? I think we're going to go for The Cold Light of Day, just because, you know, with that cast, seriously. When's, when's that avoidable? The cold Light Day is avoidable at five past seven in the evening on Saturday on Film 4. 3.42, what else is brand new? Aquaman, ah, which yes. again opened uh, previewing in cinemas on Wednesday, so I went to see it in the cinema in Leicester Square, admittedly in, in the morning, but so that you tend therefore to get you know people going to the first performance of the film. Uh, character previously seen, albeit uh, briefly, in a couple of other DC Universe films, directed by James Wan, who made Saw, Insidious, Conjuring, Furious 7. So this starts with the lighthouse keeper saving Lana, who's the princess of Atlantis, played by Nicole Kidman, who seems weirdly throughout to be either holding her breath or um, her breath underwater about to sneeze. And uh, they they fall in love and uh, they have a child. So it's kind of like Splash or Song of the Sea, but but it's kind of not. It's more Splash than Splash. Anyway, they fall in love. They have a child who is half man, half... Biscuit? M- m- <laughs> that would be good. Very good uh, 1990s. 1990s reference. 1990s reference, very good. Um, uh, Jason Momoa as uh, our hero, Arthur, who is a hero, but in 
the home city underwater, he is seen as being, in inverted commas, a half-breed in the same way as the you know, kind of thing that's, been, that's happened in Harry Potter with uh, muggles and all that sort of stuff. So um, his mother returns to her home where he has a half-brother, played by Patrick Wilson, who for a horrible moment when he first turned up, I thought he was Juli- Julian Sands. I thought it was a young Julian Sands, and I wondered how they managed to do that. Um, Orm wants to unite the undersea tribes and declare war on the air breathers up on the land who are polluting the oceans. Here's a clip. You were the reason our mother was executed. And I've hated you for it ever since. But I do not want to kill you, Arthur. I'm going to give you one chance. Go home. Do not ever come back to Atlantis. You are not going to win this. The war is coming to the surface whether you like it or not. And I'm bringing the wrath of the Seven Seas with me. You know I can't let that happen. I know. So he's challenged to a duel, or he challenges him to a duel, from which he is basically saved by Mira, played by Amber Heard, um, looking like the Little Mermaid's much tougher sister. And they then go off onto the land, and the adventure then goes from the deep sea to the desert, and kind of, you know, hopping around various different locations. So um, on the good side, uh, Jason Momoa has a lot of fun as Aquaman. He makes the character likable and entertaining. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Again, if you've seen the trailer, you'll know this, but there's a lot of stuff, like the bit when he's in the bar and a bunch of guys come and go, are you Aquaman? Yes, yes. And then they want to, can we have a selfie with him? And he has got real sort of charm in the same way that, uh, you know, you think of like in, uh, you know, you're welcome, the Maui character, the demigod character, somebody who's big and strong, but a likable kind of lunk. So that's that's fun. The stuff with him and Mira in the desert is kind of cute and rather endearing. And the visuals are very bright and sparkly. And because, it, you know, at a time in which we've had so many super dark comic book universes, it's quite good to see something in which, you know, the blues and aquamarines, those are the colours that are to the fore. And there is, you know, there is an emphasis on light, on brightness, even with all the sort of serious stuff going on, you know, about oh, the political thing about what's happening in the undersea kingdom, it has this kind of bright, shiny quality to it. The problems are, firstly, the, 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 it's a very, very patchy script. The story pulls left, right, hither and yon, comes and goes like the tide and threatens whenever it gets serious to be sort of pulled under by the sort of riptide of its own thematic undercurrents, which don't make a lot of sense. Some of the characters are fun but there isn't much in the way of character development um there is there's a lovely thing at the beginning when young arthur who's being bullied at school again this is in the trailer is being bullied at school and he goes to an aquarium and these kids pick on him and suddenly the camera pulls back and you realize that all the fish are lining up behind him and that's a really great moment because it's a moment of character development but then after that he's pretty much the same character all the way through now I, you know it may be one thing to be not be a character who's actually tortured by their own identity but i could have done with with more development and the other problem is that firstly orm is quite a boring character i mean you know it's it, it, as far as the 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 interaction between the characters go there isn't enough of a tangible proper dynamic between any of them to make the interpersonal stuff work and then you start 
thinking, well, you know, a lot of it is just silly, you know, including the drumming octopus, which looks like an outtake from Shark Tale. The drumming octopus. The drumming octopus. Um, And, uh, I mean, you know, hats off to Willem Dafoe for keeping a straight face while people are sort of, you know, riding sharks and, and all that sort of stuff. And I found myself at one point suddenly wondering about the mechanics of breathing and speaking underwater, because most of the time they actually might as well have been in space, uh, because there's just you know, this kind of floaty hair and slightly floating around, but no sense of being underwater. And, you know, why is it that some of the characters have to have water-filled helmets and some of them don't? And I know that that is explained in there, but in a way that kind of passed me by. But the, the underlying problem is when you start worrying about that stuff, when you start worrying in a superhero universe about the mechanics of how it works, it means that something isn't clicking. And there is a huge reliance on CGI. I mean, absolutely enormous reliance on CGI. So even when the characters are doing things that are individually kind of quite quirky and quite likable, it's in this huge sea of CG stuff happening. And what it does mean is that whenever anything kind of, whenever the narrative sort of grinds to a halt or to a dead end, they just throw everything, like everything and the kitchen sink. And there's this kind of tidal wave of stuff is thrown at the wall on the basis that, well, some of it will work. And some of it does, but it's a very, very, I mean, it's a total mess. It is a very, very baggy movie that had moments that were enjoyable and things in it that I individually like. And it has a certain kind of, you know, come on, off we go, you know, like a family in the seaside, you know, charge into the sea. It's a bit rough, but you know what? Be all right. And it has that about it, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a film, the weight of the water, which is not held up by the film itself. And I did find myself, in certain sections, I thought, okay, I'm just completely disengaged. I'm just watching the CGI special effects. So it's it's a mess and it's all over the shop, but it's kind of enjoyable in a, in a I said, in a kind of let's put the show on here sort of way. Uh, Wayne Thornhill's been to see Aquaman. Okay. Just come out of Aquaman slash How to Train Your Little Mermaid. Thoroughly enjoyable <laughs> whilst good. being utter rubbish. Oh, well, at the there same we go. Time. Fine. The, the, so that's very much in in uh, in keeping with what I was. Patrick thinking. Wilson was trying to outdo Eddie Redmayne in Jupiter's Ascending. <laughs> well, Eddie Redmayne. Well worth a, a watch for spectacle and accidental comedic value. Uh, Graham in Newcastle. Graham Wedderburn. It's the worst movie I ever loved. <laughs> After a slow prologue... That's a great line. ...with some awkward CGI characters, the movie picked up, didn't stop, hurtling towards the endgame with a sly grin from Momoa all the way. Uh, There's a way the movie uses a preposterous script absolutely unapologetically and expects to get away with it that I just loved. Yeah, that's fair fair enough, actually. That is a fair enough defence. I would laugh at it constantly, but also laugh with it when asked to. To command both, I think, explains the absolute joy I felt like no other film has managed. If okay. you if you were to miss this magic interaction, you'd hate the movie. I'll end by saying this. I don't watch it ever again, as I may not love it as much yeah, the second yeah, yeah. time. Thank yeah, you. I mean, I think that's... Okay, that's very interesting. It's a very interesting cross-section that is, again, broadly in keeping with that thing about it's all over the shop and it's way too long, but it's kind of fun in an odd, silly way, but... You're right, I wouldn't want to watch it again. <laughs> Ten to four? What else we got? The House That Jack Built, which is a new film by Lars von Trier, who you'll remember um, said some really stupid things at the Cannes Film Festival many years ago. He was declared persona non grata. Um, now he came back to the Cannes Film Festival with The House That Jack Built, um, which caused outrage, outrage at Cannes. People walking out of the screening. How dare he? It's terrible. It's awful. Um, which is a thing that happens at Cannes. Never, ever trust any Cannes screening reaction, okay? Because people, when they're at Cannes, they're 
senses have just turned to mush because it's not conducive for, you know, for good film criticism. Anyway, so uh, Matt Dillon is a serial killer who is recounting his story to an unseen companion called Verge and they are on a journey in darkness. So at the beginning, there are two characters in darkness telling a story on a journey. You, you know, you don't have to be a genius to fill in what's going on. Um, so he's telling his story to somebody, which obviously echoes the format of uh, Nymphomaniac, Volumes 1 and 2. He says that he will tell his story via five incidents, which are a series of murders and predominantly murders of women. He murders a woman with a whose, whose car is broken down and she's got a broken jack and his name is Jack, Broken Jack. Um, he strangles uh, a woman in her home. There's a mother and kids that he hunts, which is a sequence which caused particular outrage. There is uh, another woman played by Riley Keough who he assaults hideously. And in between, we hear his views on architecture versus engineering. He's been designing and building and destroying and redesigning and building a house for years and years and years, but it never lives up to his OCD expectations. And the murders themselves seem to be some kind of byproduct of his OCD tendencies because he actually appears more interested in cleaning up afterwards than in the things themselves because they, they're all pre presented in a sort of weirdly distanced, dispassionate, ironic, sardonic, nasty kind of way. Now, you can read the film as a, an ironic commentary on Lars's own provocative career and in fact at one moment there's this kind of montage of the horrors of, of of human existence which uses a number of clips from Lars von Trier's films which is sort of which is very very Lars um it also like so many of his movies it exists in an explicitly theological universe I mean you go back to Breaking the Waves which ends with the bells ringing in heaven and this provides the counterpoint to that but von Trier himself whenever he's doing you know religion or you know nature is Satan's church in Antichrist and all that stuff it's always I'm sorry Lars I can't hear you talking because your tongue is so firmly in your in, in your cheek um i can see why it is that some people took against it i mean there is real nastiness in there there is violence that is reminiscent of the stuff that's in new york ripper there is a moment when his companion verge says children the most sensitive of all subjects as if von trier is saying look i'm about to provoke you with the most sensitive of all subjects there is also a duckling scene which incidentally the end of the film no animals were harmed it was something that was reproduced but i think when people saw it it can they didn't quite understand that and it is a comedy in the sense of you know the really yeah, in the sense of the divine comedy, it is a film which, which, as with all of Von Trier's stuff, how seriously it takes itself remains absolutely a matter of opinion. And there are certainly, although I know it sounds absurd, and I know that you're not a fan of, of Von Trier, there are certainly moments in it which provoke dark chuckles. And the whole film has a comedic, absurdist, ridiculous, as I said, living in this explicitly theological universe and saying well if if okay if that's what it's like then why don't we try this the weird thing about it is i mean i'm di very divided about it it's i there's some von trier films i've really liked i really like melancholia I, I i really liked antichrist i really hated breaking the waves i really hated the idiots and when the walkouts happened in Cannes, von trier said well i'm not sure that they hated it enough when the people walked out of the house that jack built and it reminded me of something that he had said to me when i said to him i I hate the idiots. And he said, that's fine as long as you really hate it. So he is a, 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 an agent provocateur that is what he does. But there is something very perverse about the fact that having spent a career making movies about the suffering of women that see the world from, from you know, through the eyes of women characters who suffer, often quite terribly, you look at a movie like Dogville, that now he's made a movie that's seen solely through the eyes of, in his words, an evil man. And it's very, it's a very von Trier thing to do. Again, whether it was deliberate, you know, the question of how deliberate anything is in von Trier's uh, back catalogue 
is always up for grabs, which means that consequently, whenever I watch his films, I always watch them with a sense of removal because I don't actually take anything that he does that seriously, certainly not seriously enough to be offended by it. So my feeling is there are things in um, uh, The House That Jack Built, as with all Von Trier's films, that are arresting and startling. There are things in it that are nasty and uh, mean-spirited and vile. It is a film about misogyny that flags up misogyny, but also to some extent wallows in misogyny. I'm not on board with the let's walk out, it's the most disgusting thing ever, but I'm also not on board with the, the now the, the counter swipe to that, which is that it's a work of genius. It isn't. It's 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 a, it's one of those sort of mid-range Von Trier films. I, I, I have liked films of his much more. I have liked films of his much less. Certainly don't go and see it if you're in the slightest bit squeamish, because although for most of the, of the film it is a kind of very abstract meditation on things, it, it's also, he's not above shock exploitation. He's not above being crass. He's not above button pushing, uh, you know, to, 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 to get a response. Um, it's, you know, there are, there are things in it that reminded me of the, the, the sculptures of Jake and Dinos Chapman, and there are things in it that actually did make me laugh, and there, and there are other things in it that make you go, oh, Lars. Yeah, I don't think I'll be... Um, no, you, you would hate... You, I absolutely would. You would hate it. I found okay. the last two minutes quite difficult. Okay, to so, so shall I finish on an up note? Well, yes. Okay, Free Solo, which is this profile of this rock climber, Alex Honnold, who... As we meet him, he is preparing to climb El Capitan in June 2017. Okay, if you've ever if you've been been to Yosemite, you've seen El Capitan. It's a straight face of rock. Right. Okay. It goes like goes from the ground to the sky in a straight line, and he's free climbing it. Free climbing it means doing it without ropes. Okay, like literally yep. without ropes. Here's a clip. It's a very intricate sequence. You've got your right hand on a crimp, left hand on a side pull. And then you put your right foot onto this dimple thing. Right hand goes up to a small downpulling crimp, left foot goes into a little dish, and then you drive up off the left foot into the thumb press. That's the worst hold on the entire route, so you get maybe half your thumb on the hold. Then you roll your two fingers over the thumb, switch your feet, left foot stems out to this really bad sloping black foothold, switch your thumbs, and then reach out left to a big sloping bread loaf type hold that feels kind of grainy. From there, either karate kick or double dino to an edge on the opposite wall. In some ways, it makes more sense to do the big two-handed jump because you're jumping to a good edge, so there's actually something to catch. But the idea of jumping without a rope seems completely outrageous. If you miss it, that's that. Somebody in the thing says, uh, this is what it's like. It's like you're in an Olympic race where there are two results. You get the gold medal or you die. The film is about two, three things. Firstly, why is he doing it? What drives him? We hear about his personality growth, his sense of adventure. And he also says, look, people can die in any many different ways. This is just an acknowledged danger. The second thing is, how does it affect his loved ones? How does it affect the people closest to him, his partner, who supports what he does but is in fear for him? And at what point do human relationships take over from those struggles? And thirdly, most interesting perhaps, how does the filmmaker's presence affect what he does, both physically and mentally? Is there a risk that in them being there, they are going to get in the way of his climbing which is you know death defying um i thought it was riveting i thought it was also terrifying it reminded me in ways of man on wire particularly since i am absolutely terrified of heights i did worry that somebody might watch this and think that's a good idea i'll try and do something similar but then i thought no you because the whole thing about the film is it's saying 
this is a, it is astonishing that anybody would even think about doing this. Um, it's called Free Solo, and it, it, I, it there are moments in it that my heart was in my mouth, <laughs> and uh, and you know I don't like heights at the best of times. I'm looking forward to this, actually. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. And it's called... Free Solo. OK, so this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Mark. <clears throat> yeah. Here we go, then. Movie of the Week. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So we ran out of time to do uh, some free solo correspondence, but um, here we go with Peter in Derbyshire. Yeah. Uh, being a big fan of both climbing and films, my expectations were exceptionally high going into the cinema. OK, for Free Solo. Yes, for free solo. Yeah. I'm thrilled to say those expectations were more than met. They were absolutely smashed. The film worked on multiple levels as a document of a fantastic climbing achievement, as a, visu- as a visually beautiful piece of landscape art, and also as a character study of the seemingly emotionally troubled Alex Honnolds. What most impressed me about the film was the mind-bending cinematography. There were multiple shots in the film which presented a confusing, endless desert of cream, only for the camera to pan out, revealing the desert to be a 3,000-foot slab of granite This really <laughs> hammered across the sheer enormity of El Capitan. This is the best film I've seen all year, and I strongly recommend your listeners to see it when it gets a wider release. Uh, Alison Tunley, I don't know if Mark's going to see Free Solo. Well, he did. did, yeah. He might say it was not a film about climbing, and he would be correct. Although the film certainly showcases Alex Alex Honnold's extraordinary athletic achievement in scaling El Capitan without a rope, this is much more than a tale of pure sporting endeavour. The film is an intensely moving and at times hysterically funny character portrait of someone who has overcome social dysfunction to build successful, albeit quirky, relationships. The filmmakers explore what it means to live your life with purpose even when that means risking your survival in the process. They examine the question of Honnold's responsibility to friends and family and ask, what is a reasonable burden to impose on someone else in pursuit yeah, of self-fulfilment? Exactly, which is what I meant about the, the toll that it takes on everybody else and at what point does that stop being the... Yeah. Honnold's ascent of El Capitan had every chance of ending in his death and the ethics of even filming such an enterprise are handled sensitively at all times. I watched with sweaty palms through fingers placed over eyes and could only survive many of the climbing shots by pretend visualising a rope. It's stressful but highly recommended. Yours feet staying... That's, you know, that is a lovely phrase, by pretend visualising a rope, and I never managed to do that. Like, literally every minute that he was on the side of the rock face, I was just... And also, I know this sounds really stupid, <clears throat> I didn't know what happened. I, I Is mean, it one of those where even if you don't, you kind of assume he's going well, to make it, otherwise okay, they and, wouldn't have made it. And, you know, and I kept saying that to myself. I kept saying to myself, this, this, must, you know, this must end well, because otherwise I wouldn't be watching this. But while you're watching it, and it's playing out, and because the, cause the quality of the, of the cinematography is so good, it, you know, it's, it's... And when he's doing that thing about talking about the, you know, the, 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 the kung fu kick move and the, and the jump and the thing about jump, you know, it, it just, you just think, what? Do my... you, you remember that same feeling you got with Philip Petit? And, and remember the whole thing about Man on Wire is there is no moving footage of him doing it. Mm. Man on Wire is absolutely, there's those stills, but that's it. There's no moving footage. There are some films, and Apollo 13 would be one, uh, where, because... Uh, I, I showed it recently at my birthday. You did, and where was that song? Some of the people who didn't, who hadn't 
seen it before and didn't know what happened. Yeah. Said to me afterwards, we assumed it would be all right because you're showing it. You know, and, it <laughs> and it would be a very bleak way to celebrate your birthday. If you're showing you know, the film which they didn't which get back. They, which they didn't get back. So, you know, sometimes... But, you, it, but in a way, the thing is, it doesn't matter. Because even though you know they get back, you still sit there watching Apollo 13, digging your nails into the seats, because it's so tense. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, anyway, so Apollo 13 should be our film of the week every week. Anyway, for thank, for the, thank you for the reviews. Already looking forward to next week with Mary Poppins. Can I ask you a question? Which you someone can. sent in, I think it might have been on Twitter. Go ahead. Is it okay to have a crush on Mary Poppins? Yeah, isn't it? I mean, why would it not be? Well, because she's not a proper character. She's made up. No, but I mean, what do you mean by a crush on? I don't know. I'm just, that is all the question was. Um, I mean, I suppose you're asking in the abstract. Uh, Okay, so as a serious attempt to answer this... I think it was a light-hearted question. I know, that's fine. Um, I mean, I don't know, now, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's weird, but, um, but I... Yeah. Right. Are you I'm, going to confess to something? No. Well, I was, I was, I was trying to find an analogy for it. When I was a, when I was a kid, there was a program on on a telly called Lost in Space. Yes, remember that? Mm -hmm. And there was somebody in Lost in Space who was also in Sound of Music. Um, and and I remember, you know, thinking that's my girlfriend. You know, well, of course, you know, it's just somebody on the television, but it's just somebody who you right. you had a, a crush on, and all that meant at that point was you thought that they were the most fabulous person you could see in the world. You're never going to meet them or anything like that, but, you know, blah. So the thing about having a crush on Mary Poppins, you mean... I don't know. I don't know what the it's, answer uh, maybe, is. I, maybe it's people who... Let's just, let's, it's, 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 some people fancy Penelope Pitstop. Yes, and then there's that whole thing in the Terry's, Terry's Wegoff film, isn't there, about, about fancying Donald Duck? Nobody fancies Donald Duck. Mm -hmm. I don't mean Terry's Wegoff. No, I do mean Terry's Wegoff. It's called uh, Crumb, isn't it? Yeah. There's that whole discussion about fancying Donald Duck. Anyway, if you've had a crush on somebody, then let's know. And um, somebody who's not real, yeah, somebody who's not real and absolutely doesn't exist. Maybe yeah, you've walked past a shop mannequin. Yeah, and thought. And incidentally, here's I the crucial. Here's the crucial thing: you're not talking about having a crush on the person that plays that character. No, I don't think so. No, no, you're talking about the character, and that's what I mean. Similarly, with with with, with Lost in Space, you've got a crush on Emily Blunt. That would be entirely understandable. But it's a crush on Mary Poppins or Julie Andrews' characterization. Mm. I mean, I think that I have got a crush on Richard Gere in as much Famously, as... Famously. Yeah, but in as much as whenever I see Richard Gere on screen, it doesn't matter what he's playing. There's a part of me that sort of just is, feels very, very affectionate towards him um, because I, I kind of got a crush on him in that... In, if, so if you mean it in that way, you know... But that's, that's the person rather than a mythical yeah, that's character. A, yeah, but to me, Richard Gere is a mythical character. I don't okay. believe he's a real person. I don't believe he exists in the real world. I know you've met him. He ruined my life. You did ruin your told life, yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> here we go. DVD of the week, then. Uh, well, hey, Mark. Hey, son. Hey, Mark. Hey, son. Hey, Mark. Oh, hey, Mark. Nothing like a 3-2 clave rhythm, is there? Nothing like a 3-2 clave rhythm, is there, Mark? No. You know, one of the most common bell patterns found in Afro-Cuban music that can be traced as far back as sub-Saharan African music tradition. How does it go? This simple five-accent hand-bone rhythm is more commonly known as... That's right, the Bo Diddley beat. Oh, dun-ka-dun-ka-dun-ka-dun-dun. Popularised by Mr. Bo, and Bo Diddley. Diddley. <laughs> his first single was modestly titled... Bo, Bo Diddley. Diddley. <laughs> that was strange. 
One of the choices for DVD of the week is Rock and Roll All-Star Jam from 1985, a concert recorded at the Irvin Meadows Amphitheatre in California with Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Ron Wood, Carl Wilson, Bo Diddley, Kenny Jones, Mick Fleetwood, Bo Diddley, Mitch Mitchell, Joan, uh, John Mayle, uh, Ronnie Lane and, of Bo course, Diddley. Bo Diddley. In a pretty lean-looking week, with its only contenders being Porco Rosso and the adult version of Jekyll and Hyde, <laughs> who's going to be the winner? Ian Johnston. Mark will pick Porco Rosso. Yeah, right, and pigs might fly. Graham Strachan. Very good. Very good. Well done. No contest, as Porco Rosso is probably my favourite Studio Ghibli film. An examination of indulgent masculinity and pompousness framed with the same childish wonder as the rest of the Ghibli oeuvre. And a subtle... The rest of the what? Do it again. Oeuvre. No, do the Ghibli bit. Ghibli. Ghibli oeuvre. And a subtle but touching ending, uh, which has yet to be surpassed by Miyazaki. As opposed to the awful Slender Man film that left half of a bad film on the cutting room floor and the other half in such tatters that it's better not to watch at all. Tom Goff, Porco Rosso for me, great action adventure about a flying pig. What more could you want? Uh, what is our DVD of the week? Not a lot of choice. Yeah, I mean, it is Porco Rosso because it is, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a slow week, but I love Porco Rosso. In a, in a great week, Porco Rosso would probably be a be a choice. So he used to present film twenty fifteen, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Are you looking? Are you That's looking? Very funny. Is He's super slim now. I'm sorry, I can't believe you're even going there. Okay, I'm. I'm. Thank you, Mark. You've been... So right. So this is basically the show in which. I managed to dig myself a hole by saying about coffee, and you managed to dig yourself a hole by explaining the Porco Rosso joke. Well, it just, it just occurred to me, and because this is the... And can I just say that I am not in any position, you know, from a... It was just a thing. It's just, if it's, Sophie it's considers like... it in, inappropriate, it won't even have existed, and it will get birdsonged. What? My joke. What does Sophie think? Is that going to get bird songed? That's no, I don't think so. It's not Sophie's decision. Well, I think it probably is. Okay. The puppet master will claim it. Since, right, since, since Sophie is in the room, Sophie, can I say? You probably heard this when Simon said Sophie, right? Okay, and I said, you know, who brings sometimes brings us in the coffee, and Simon said she does more than that. She said, I said, no, I know, I didn't mean for one minute that Sophie just brings in the coffee, but I said because I quite often when you do, and I say thank you, and then he gives me a hard time. But who are you saying thank you to? I'm saying thank you to to what are you doing? I'm making it worse. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I wanted to say I'm genuinely sorry. I did not mean. I didn't mean that to say. I, I, Why do you even bother? Okay. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, literally having one of those days. I mean, shall I? Shall I tell you what you need? Go on. I'll tell you what you need. You need a vegetable vindaloo and three <laughs> pints of beer. What do you say? BBC Radio Five Live. 